Hello and welcome to the next episode of The Podcast, a cannabis podcast for budding enthusiasts. This episode, as always, was brought to you by 420 Australia, your premier store for lifestyle and apparel, as well as OGS, your number one store for all things organic gardening. Over the coming few episodes, we're going to be doing a few catch-up episodes, and this one, we feature Jeremy of Builder Soil. Hope you're ready to get all that organic knowledge again. Here we go. Alrighty, so here we are again, Builder Soil 2.0. Thank you very much, Jeremy, for coming on the show again and for spending the time with us. Yeah, thanks for having me on. It's exciting to coordinate this from uh, across the ocean. <laughs> As always. So, uh, same question as what we did last time, what are you smoking on at the moment? Um, right now, I harvested most recently some Angel Backcross from Boneyard, and I think it was his Backcross 2, so I think he outcrossed it with blue cheese, and uh, Boneyard, his male is basically the same for everything that he works with, and it's named after his father, and uh, I'm not sure the exact lineage off the top of my head, I'd have to look it up. Um, but I like a lot of his crosses. And at the same time, I also grew some uh, Northern Lights 5 Haze uh, crosses. And they were interesting. Um, the seeds were really old. I popped them. It really just kind of has an earthy odor, nothing to get excited about. But it, it does pack a pretty good punch. And so that's those are the two that I have right now. And I mean, overall, would you describe yourself as more of like a sativa type of person or a more indica head? I like it all. Um, I, I'd say that at this point, I'm more attracted to something different, unique odors, unique flavors, something I haven't had before. And um, I like to have a little bit of everything in my house based on the time of day, whether it's morning, whether I got to work, whether I'm trying to sleep. And so one of the benefits of having a small home grow is you can grow as many different flavors as you want and yield doesn't necessarily have to be at the forefront and so I have kind of a bad seed habit and uh, uh, for my birthday a couple days ago I popped some new seeds and got a few different things in the greenhouse um, and they're all over the place I found that I don't really lean towards sativa or indica one way or the other okay and just as a little personal question do you keep clones at all? Because I notice you do really tend to run different things every time. So do you just kind of like enjoy it and let it move on or do you keep stuff around? Uh, there's been times where I've kept them around for periods of time. And now it seems like with family and everything that I've got going on in my life, it's a lot easier to just pop seeds when I want them. And one of the things that I started doing, um, when I keep clones, I have this feeling that it's taken away from me going through a lot of the seeds that I'd like to go through. And so I've always tell my, telling myself, you know, one day I'm going to settle down and just get this one clone, this one girl, and I'm just going to grow her the whole time. And then I can actually do some comparative um, testing versus different runs, different lights. And so we're going to do that, but I think that's going to become more of the build the soil test grow. And then I'm going to always have my personal seed runs. And uh, from there, um, if I find something I really like in the pack, then I'll go buy, buy more, run them, and then keep a clone around. Another way to keep a clone that I've found is to give it to a few different buddies, and if you ever want it back, and they're the types that you know are really good, uh, they do a good job, and we'll keep them. Um, it's a great way to expand your library without having you know, so many at your house. And just as maybe like a little bit of a finicky question, do you go to the effort of like researching the breeders and seeing, you know, does this one breed their stuff in soil, yes or no? <laughs> 
I I would say yes, I do. I do do that. It's not really the first and foremost thing, but the epigenetic quality that I believe is there. Um, for instance, with vegetable seeds at our Build-A-Soil shop, we carry locally produced seed from a similar altitude, and I feel like that's going to be best for the local gardeners here. And similarly, if you have a gardener um, that's going to be growing or cultivating in a certain style, I think that might be the best way to go. So, Yeah, okay, sweet. So I guess in general in this episode, I was kind of thinking we could maybe hit a few more advanced ideas than we did last time, because I, I think last episode we did a good job of hitting most of the basics. So okay. the first thing I wanted to touch on, because there's just a lot of, uh, I guess, kind of interest in it in Australia, Mammoth P. You know, it's one of those products where it's definitely appears to be one of those more high-end ones. From what I've seen, it, uh, it tends to promote, like, different uh, growth styles from plants. Like, I've seen plants where when it's used on it, it promotes, like, really hard foxtailing. Um, and for some people, that's maybe a bit of a cause for concern. I also know other organic gurus, so to speak, who say they won't touch it and they don't consider it to be organic. What's your opinion on it? You know, do you think it's a bit getting into the semantics or do you feel it's a product worth getting? It seems to be quite cost prohibitive, if nothing else. Um, these products are really interesting and they, they play on a few different things, which I feel from a business background and from a marketing perspective are sure to be successful in sales. I think that time is going to predict if it's going to be sure to be successful uh, in results. And I know that people are using Mammoth Pete and that they're experiencing um, a plethora of different results. I think that there's more to be learned about this stuff. And so um, depending on the soil recipe, if we have a really high phosphorus mix, it may release an undesirably large amount of stuff. And so um, depending on the soil recipe, that's that's something interesting to consider. Um and then when we're looking at phosphorus, uh, when we started looking at some of these products, one of the things that was interesting to me is like where you're at, for instance, um, phosphorus is a problem. And so the hydroponic nutrients are actually different than the products that are sold here based on the phosphorus being a prohibiting factor. Is that correct? That's it. Okay. And so it becomes something that obviously you're, we, we want to be open to and have an open mind for. And so now, um, as we're going to see more products come on the market, I think that most importantly, I would like to base it on results. But just in thinking about it, it makes sense from an agricultural perspective that phosphorus mobilization is one of the lag binds that the synthetic nutrients are able to you know, contend with. And for the first time looking at acreage grows and doing soil testing, when you're confronted with having to raise the phosphorus levels – and you need to do it in a short period of time without using animal husbandry and cover crop and long, long-term long approaches, um, it becomes pretty clear that it would be advantageous to have an organic way to either release phosphorus or add phosphorus cost-effectively. And I don't necessarily mean just to feed the plant, but maybe to balance the soil so that we're operating with a balance of potassium and phosphorus or whatever is desirable to the particular agronomist. And so I'm like, okay, it makes a lot of sense. You release phosphorus from um, these microbes, and there's white papers that actually study it and go over it, prove it. The cost side is very interesting to me. And so Mammoth P, I haven't run all the numbers on it, but that's one of the complaints that we hear. Um, I know that there's been some discussions about the type of microbes that may, or may not be present in it being dangerous um, or being non-existent and it may be just a hormone. But everyone knows there's a lot of conversation about it. And so to add to that, um, recently we carry some products under the brand RootWise. 
It's actually a friend of mine, legendary uh, grower and farmer, and he's been using um, biology for a long time. And he brought a product called Biofoss, just released last week, and or I should say he did, and we got our first order of it in. And that's what we're going to be going with as opposed to something like Mammoth Pea. And the reason is we want something to be more of a complete soil support system instead of so singular. And this one is a mixture of different um, uh, microorganisms that will help liberate phosphorus. But when you start reading up on what's in the package, you'll notice that a lot of them are just, um, for instance, one of the largest ones in there is, I believe, Megaterum. And that one is one of the largest rod-shaped bacteria. And it's just an enzyme producer. And it feeds the phosphorus mobilizers that are in that. And so... I'm going to have to do some side-by-side tests. I'm going to have to you know, really wrap my head around this. But the writing's on the wall that the industry is moving towards phosphorus solub- solubizing instead of heavy phosphorus applications, um, which makes a lot of sense. And the other thing that we're looking at right now, um, if you want to try and play with this on your own, and I think over the next year, I'll probably have a product. Um, should I'd love to send you guys some stuff all the way up there. We'll see if we can make it work. But Hell yeah. uh, amino acids are really interesting and we've got a freeze-dried fish amino acid under the name thrive.n thriven and one of the things the manufacturer has been discussing with me is how they've noticed that when they use it with a mineral calcium like calphos and it's micronized and they use the two together the amino acids actually chelate it and release a much higher percentage of the phosphorus to be available than would be without it And so I feel like we're on the cusp of a few different things for phosphorus to be coming around the corner in organic gardening. At least that's what I feel like in the discussions I'm having right now. Um, But one of the things that's nice is if you have typical no-till practices where you have earthworms and you have a mulch layer and you have products that have phosphorus in them, um, even in low amounts, and you're utilizing these processes, uh, especially with compost, which is usually rich in phosphorus, I don't feel like it's something that is imperative that we all reach out to um, as far as a must-have, especially when you mentioned the cost prohibitive side of it. But um, I think that anybody who is doing this as a hobby or anybody who's really serious about it is going to be wanting to try these things and see personally if they make a difference. Um, What has your experience been? I've never used Mammoth Pea before. Well, I actually haven't used it myself, but I've used a similar product which uses what they described as a phosphorus liberator in conjunction with a phosphorus solubilizer. So I guess they're... So it's two microbes. They said it's uh, Azobacter and uh, Bacillus subtilis. So it seemed like uh, I actually got a little bit of that foxtailing as well. And it was from something where I'd never observed foxtailing before. So I was just wondering if maybe I was like, had expected to see that in a way, you know what I mean? Like confirm it, like a false confirmation type thing. But um, what was interesting was it, it, it struck this idea in my mind of maybe the idea isn't just to use some really exotic, you know, uh, testosterone type bacteria, which is in mammoth pea, but instead to just use maybe some more common ones like Azobacter and Subtilis and just have, you know, like a more symbiotic relationship between the microbes in your pot. Yeah, and it's um, – I think that where we lack knowledge, a lot of times we make up in diversity, and we notice nature does that. And so if we're able to find um, a group or consortium of different phosphorus solubilizers that work, like in the RootWise product or the one that you found over there or something a little more singular like the Mammoth P, um, I think that right now the hard part is all these products have 
either full transparency or no transparency. And a lot of times it's based on the labeling loopholes or the labeling problems with the lack of knowledge of these products and how they may affect the um, environment um, and how they may affect the consumer based on agricultural policies, which affect, you know, multi-million dollar, multi-billion dollar crops, depending on, you know, which state or which country they're coming into. And so, um, like you mentioned, I don't think we know. And I think that there's a lot of people who have done a lot of research and they're able to narrow it down using the scientific method, finding out which ones are best for phosphorus, create phosphatase or whatever uh, is most important there. But I feel like it's just the very beginning. There's only a few products out. There's um, there's yet to be a dramatic shift. Um, you know, everybody's using silica or everybody... Um, uses certain key products that we always talk about, but I don't think uh, so far it's really penetrated 100% across the board. And so as the new products come out, we'll be talking about them and we'll see um, as we do some some build-a-soil test grows, uh, maybe we'll do a side-by-side with and without a phosphorus additive and see if there's any differences using the same cut. And as we get a little bit uh, more comfortable around here, I'm thinking we can send that into the lab and you know get some analysis that way. But... Um, as far as actual, you know, recommendation right now, I think I would recommend you just trying it and not believing any of the marketing claims unless you try it for yourself. And also make sure that you're not wasting a whole bunch of money on something that um, has no benefit by doing that trial. Yeah. So the last little question on phosphorus, it's actually a bit of a tricky one to find down under because bone meal is almost non-existent, surprisingly. So, what would you recommend as a good organic source of phosphorus for on scale? Um, because I've looked into brands that, you know, like wheat bran, rice bran, seems like it might be a viable option given it, you know, like in terms of its overall profile, it seems to be phosphorus heavy, but still nothing abundant outside of like guano, which a lot of people want to avoid nowadays. Um, do you have any minerals that are rich in phosphorus? Probably not in that area, right, that you could use? Yeah, I mean, there's soft rock phosphate. I don't know if you consider that heavy in phosphorus, but um, that's certainly available. No, it has some available. I would consider feeding that through a warm bin as a more specific type of feed to direct the amount available phosphorus in the end product. And then you could use that, which has been chelated through the process of enzyme and breakdown of the of the food web in the warm bin and so then you'd have something that was instead of you know just a mineral phosphorus that may not be so bioavailable you now have something that is more more nutritionally available um and so that might be a possibility other things to consider would be look up material that you could farm on scale depending on the environment that produce phosphorus so pumpkin seeds i know cucumber um skin has a large amount of phosphorus. And so if there was something that you could cultivate as opposed to mine, and that could be cultivated in a method that wasn't you know, super expensive and it, and it was a big biomass producer, uh, or maybe it was a waste product, um, that might be a possibility. And so imagine if you had like a pumpkin seed phosphorus extract that was uh, put together with some sort of product that actually worked. And so um, those are the things that, that I would think about. The other thing that I look at is most of the compost test results that we look at have a lot of phosphorus and a lot of potassium, depending on the source. And so have you looked at local compost? Is there any availability of decent compost? Can you look at any tests? 
Yeah, I think honestly we're in the beginning stages of that. I think a few of the soil companies are starting to get tests done, which is cool, but at the moment it seems like DIY is always going to be the best quality. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Um, I would probably be top dressing any material that would have phosphorus in it. Quick Google search would turn up a number of them. Um, and then the idea of working things through a worm bin, especially when you don't have as much available, is one of them, it makes it more um, effective as far as it's used to the plant, but it also has the ability to mitigate a lot of potential problems. Worms can alleviate some of the toxic properties that may come with some of the mined materials or some of the lower quality compost. And so if anyone's in an area where all they have is a compost that they may not be a big fan of or it's just not as uh, potent or attractive or maybe it's just not as good as they think it should be, you can always run that through a worm bin and make your own superior material starting with that uh, you know, lower quality uh, starting material. And so just as a little follow-up question, how long do you think you should ideally leave stuff to mature in a compost bin for? Because I, it almost feels like it's becoming a bit of a wanking contest where people are like, oh, my one-year matured worm castings. It's like, I thought three years was pretty adequate. Uh, sorry, three years. I thought three months was fairly <laughs> adequate. But um, it almost seems like it's just creeping up and up as a way of trying to make yours seem better. Yeah, I think that's always the same in any industry. Um, There's always going to be a competitive spirit to it, and there's going to be people that want to show off, and that's fine. Um, But at the end of the day, it also depends on your starting inputs. And so if if you're trying to make compost from woody material and things that are higher lignin and take a long time to break down, you're going to have to take a longer time to make that compost. And um, if you're doing thermal compost that you're turning and it's the proper carbon to nitrogen ratio, in a few weeks you have something that's closer to finished than most would expect. And then um, from there, either finish it through worms or let it finish on its own. And it shouldn't take very long. Um, Three to four months, you can have a good finished product if you get really good at it. I prefer to buy compost that takes a couple of years to make and is on larger scale. And one of the only reasons I, I think that is that it seems to be more stable from batch to batch and a little more homogenous because it takes so long and it seems to settle in at like around 6.4 pH where the stuff that is made a little bit faster uh, with manures or with grasses or whatever makes that carbon to nitrogen ratio. It seems that a lot of times they're a little bit more volatile. They have a wider carbon to nitrogen ratio. They have a little bit more salts, a little bit more potency. And so using them at a high, high percentage is hard. Um, and at home, for instance, if you're making vermicompost from newspaper recycling and you know waste mail, it's going to be nutritionally very different from something like feeding it high phosphorus amendments and composts and coffee grounds and stuff that's really rich. And so um, it's just important to consider all that stuff. And so I wanted to bring up this overarching idea. I should have probably done it earlier on, but... There's been, you know, that forever there's been arguments over the semantics of organic amendments. In last episode, we referenced how some people don't consider gypsum or pumice to technically be organic. And so, what I've been thinking of is, I've been thinking about this a long time, and what I basically think is, should the topic, instead of being, is it organic or not, should we not instead maybe rephrase it to be, is it harmful to the microlife? Because is that not really the real factor? Like, if something's not going to be detrimental to the microbes... Does it really matter if it's organic or not? Um, I think that's a really good way to look at it. And I think the other side of that is um, the process of how it's extracted, the process of how it's mined, the availability of the materials. 
And so sometimes you might find something that wouldn't be quote unquote organic uh, from maybe a chemistry perspective where we're trying to find carbon in it. Um, but gypsum is certainly organic as far as approved for organic production, as far as, you know, uh, minerals are something that plants grow in as well as soil. And so it's interesting how convoluted that, that conversation gets. And I'm right there with you. The problem, the problem is as soon as you open up a policy that says, let's just look if it's good for the microbe life, um, we could potentially open ourselves up to using materials that may have some more negative effects. And so I guess what I mean by that is even in organics, um, I, you know, is it, is it good for the microbe life? Is it good for the environment? Is it good for us in particular, our local area? Does it make financial sense? I think that you have to pass it through a number of different tests, particular to either the farm or the grower. And when we're working on scale, it becomes a lot more important because we don't have like luxury, luxury budgets for uh, wasteful products that we may not need. And so um, it gets real, you know, when you look at an, at an acre and you may have said, no, I'm not gonna use any chicken manure, but you notice that there's a local product that has phosphorus and it's chicken manure and you can use it. Now it becomes, okay, well, that's good. It's local, it's a waste product. Um, should you visit the farm and see if the chickens are treated good or is it already a waste and you need to purchase it? So you have to draw the line in the sand to determine how important it is for you to be supporting businesses, supporting processes that you would support if you knew all the details of. Um, but that's, that line's going to be different for everybody. And so at the base level, of course, if you have no-till soil, the last thing you want to do is in, in, introduce something that would – um, waste your investment in the long-term use of your soil. And so right away it becomes a difference of, okay, do I want to use uh, all these fast-release nutrients or do I actually want to have a balanced soil that's going to work for me in the long term? And we found different ways to use different products that help kind of cut corners, if that makes sense, in living soil. Um, like when you're sexing seedlings in smaller containers, you can get away with a few things. But for your main soil for the long term, um, I think it is more than just the microbe life. So, but but it's not as simple as just organic. Yeah, sorry. Does that make any sense? It's just it gets convoluted no matter how we do that. Um, yeah, do I think, think at the basics, it just doesn't matter if it's organic or not. In my opinion, it matters uh, especially if uh, you can support the entire idea behind the product, the producer of the product. If it's good for your soil, if it's good for your local environment. But if you're shipping it, for instance, uh, like right now, we support the use of neem and karanja seed, and we'll talk a little more about that. But well, one of the reasons why is we've been working with a company uh, behind the scenes, and we're going to be locking down a contract on a uh, locally stateside produced product that I think is going to be really good for the environment and really good for the growers. And so right now, though, is importing something all the way from India worth it if there's something in my backyard that I could use? Um, I don't know. It's an individual question. That's what you're doing, I guess. I was about to say, don't worry, we're going to get to Neemgate. So, I guess what you're getting at is the, the devil really is in the details, isn't it? And so, to to highlight an example, this is one I always hear. You know, Subcool's Super Soil. This is uh, a product which has Epsom salt in it. Well, he advocates if you follow the recipe correctly, it will. Do you feel Epsom salt is like a majorly detrimental thing to the soil? And more importantly, do you think it would turn a product, sorry, would a product no longer be organic if it has a bit of Epsom salt in it, in your opinion? 
No, not at all. I think it's perfectly fine to use it. Um, I think that the question more becomes, why would I be using it? And is there purpose? And in my garden, I've never found a purpose to consciously putting it as far as a soil mix. Um, and the reason why is we use soil testing. And when we get a balance back, it looks like, for the most part, we're very good in magnesium. Now, there's been cases where we work with farms, whether it's in potting soil or native soil, where it comes back and it's low in magnesium. So the next question is, where are we on sulfur? Are we already high or are we low? If we're low on sulfur, we're low on magnesium. Uh, using magnesium sulfate or Epsom salt is perfectly fine for organic production and should be used accordingly. Um, I've never seen any detriment to the soil. I've never seen any any reason other than the fact that the word salt is in the name not to use it. And if you look at comparatively the fact that gypsum is widely used, it's in our soil recipe, and I love it, it's calcium sulfate. From a chemicals perspective, magnesium sulfate, if those were just the two names, it'd be hard to say one is good and one is bad. But because I think the word is Epsom salt, and we think of something we buy at the drugstore with a drug label on it for soaking our feet in, all of a sudden it becomes a, a convoluted topic. But it's not salt, it's not sodium. And even sodium is required in a soil depending on um, you know what the soil test says. So everything has its purpose on this planet and i think that uh for better or worse the whole organic i'm better than you thing has um confused the topic of ingredients a lot so you referenced earlier amino acids this is another kind of trending topic at the moment what is your go-to for amino acids i think and even more so than that I think underlyingly is a lot of people don't understand what they're doing, you know. I think if you've done a bit of research into it, you maybe understand that not all nitrogen is amino acids um, and amino acids are generally more valuable than just nitrogen. But, you know, do you want to expand on that a little for us? And more importantly, what are your go-to sources for them? Absolutely. Now, with all of this stuff, I am just... Somebody who likes to do research, someone who is passionate about this stuff, and I encourage you to do your own research. Most of the time when I'm conversing online and we're typing, I'm pasting references in. I'm doing a little bit of research before I open my mouth. And so as we go through this, just take it with a grain of salt. I'm not a scientist or an agronomist. And amino acids, from what I understand, have um, always been important, but they're at the forefront because we're finding better ways to produce <coughs> To produce them, and from organics, it, it is one of those key boosters that you can apply either foliarly or through the, soil, uh, through the soil. And what we found is they're building blocks. And so um, when you look at nitrogen, and if you were to think of it as uh, an organic material like alfalfa and the nitrogen that's therein as a really long chain, and if you were to break it down, they would be kind of a, a polypeptide chain, they call it. And then from there, those polypeptides broken down would contain the individual links of the chain, the, the amino acids. And so the amino acids are the building blocks of the nitrogen. And so I think that if we take a step back and we look at organics and we're talking about how to use <coughs> our knowledge and use biomimicry to the highest level to say, okay, <coughs> how can we um, – boost this process without taking over how can we complement and better be uh soil and plant you know apply better plant husbandry um, without you know being in a position where now it's all synthetic and we're in control and the, the the key things that we see are 
fulvic acids, uh, amino acids, and a lot of it revolves around lowering the energy required for the plant to do its job. And if the plant has to do a job that's necessary for every part of its production, would it be right to supplement that or would it be helpful to give the plant more of it so that it doesn't have to produce it itself so that it can then continue its job at a more efficient pace? And so when I ask these questions, I start to think about human nutrition because I oftentimes compare it to myself and I think of the stomach as a cation exchange uh, and the colon and, and that whole process. So there's some similarities. And I think, you know what, if I was going for um, a bodybuilding contest or if I wanted to be at um, an Olympic athlete or whatever it was and I'm trying to be in peak optimal condition like we want out of our plants, not just a general run-of-the-mill organic plant, but one that is at the top of its game with every ability to produce possible according to its own genetic profile. So much like a human, it's not like you're going to grow taller because you're taking a supplement, but you might be healthier and better able to perform your functions. I feel like it would be like an athlete eating all the square meals and all the vegetables they're supposed to, but at a certain point, it takes so much time out of their day to prepare those meals, to chew them, and to digest them alongside with all the work they have to do to maintain their optimal results. It makes sense that they would blend stuff in a smoothie, and that is micronization. We do that all the time with the organics. We found that they're faster available when we micronize things. And then the next thing we look at is amino acids as part of the profile for recovery and for building those muscles and for performing at a higher level instead of just looking at protein as protein from a McDonald's cheeseburger versus a very selective grass-fed protein uh, product or premium uh, vegetable or whatever you get your protein from. And so if you think of it that way, of course it makes sense. No matter who you are, you could always be improved upon with a couple of supplements that are natural and, and giving you that peak optimal potential for either keeping your energy up or making sure that you can perform. So we go back to plants and it's like, okay, we can do water only. We can build a soil. To me, that is eating the three square meals or the four meals a day with the right balance of vegetables, right? But then we look at supplements as the next level that we can start to apply. And so we did the basics in the last episode. Everyone knows you can make a good living soil, good compost, water only, as long as you have a lot of soil and a mulch layer and worms and stuff, you're going to have very good results. But um, aminos are kind of that next level. And so we've been playing with a product called Thriven, and it's a freeze-dried uh, fish hydrolysate and so it doesn't require the phosphoric acid or the liquid that comes along with the liquid fish products and we've also played with some soy products um what do you guys have available out there that might be called an amino acid product there's a few different ones um i've seen uh i think someone was using uh like the coconut pulp um, I see okay. people people making you know a lot of fish hydrosylates things like that sorry hydrosalates so yeah, yeah I get all the words wrong yeah a lot of, a lot of <laughs> so, DIY stuff at the moment basically okay um, we got the amino acid products and we started with one called pure protein dry and the story goes that um, Rootwise and some of the other big tree outdoor growers he'd turned me on to. He mentioned that a lot of them were using these amino acid products to grow bigger than 10 pound plants outdoors. And that it became a big thing where people would foliar spray amino acids a couple of times a week or more, even deep into flower. Um, 
on these outdoor crops and have superior results and they wouldn't get the fading of the leaves so early. They wouldn't get all these problems that would happen when you're really trying to grow a 10 pound plus plant, which will highlight a lot of your weaknesses much faster than when you're growing a small plant and uh, on a short season. And so that got my interest because now I know, okay, the pros, the people that I look up to, a lot of times they're not talking about a lot of their processes because they'll get um, judged from every angle for maybe foliar spraying something in flower or maybe using a product that is not the typical permaculture style. And so we started using the pure protein dry and we had really incredible results. Um, it really sped up the vegetative process. It allowed us to um, take advantage of the hormonal change that happens when you go into flower and leverage some very available nitrogen that's not the same type that normally causes burn and problems and foxtailing and so you can use a small amount of it all the way through flower or at least up near the end and it'll allow you to leverage the flowering components even better as far as the building blocks of building those flowers and so right away we knew okay amino acids are important and so from pure protein dry we found there was actually some extra products mixed into that. Um, there was zinc and there was iron and there was some bacterias and we just weren't interested in all that. We also started getting a mixture of different packages showing up when we order the product in bulk. And so behind the scenes, we talked to a few growers that knew the real story and found out that the owners had a falling out and um, beyond all of that drama, uh, the product Thrive N is supposedly the leader in the industry and they're taking their time to get all the labels right we've got the product in our store now and it is a singular ingredient and it is the more pure form of aminos and so right now i'm encouraging others to play with it share their feedback and so if you don't have access to that product i'd encourage you to research and find something that may be applicable um, because i've never been a big foliar spray guy but these amino acids are making a big difference and i think that um, besides that also just using them as part of the first couple weeks during stretch and flower um, it might make a big difference to a lot of growers now if you've got a huge bed of soil it's been there for years you got worms in it you've got tons of nitrogen and I, I just think you're always going to be okay with that but as we mentioned the Olympic athlete compared to the average person a lot of times that a couple of supplements might make that 1% difference that make that gold medal difference versus someone who's at home um you know, not achieving the same results. So I'm open to it. And I think amino acids is really one of the paramount organic uh, tools, just like fulvics and a few other things that are worth the money. And what I mean by that is around here, when you're looking at the soil, uh, one of the problems with our clay soil leads a lot of people to getting a fish fertilizer to organically farm on, on scale. And they recommend about I think it's 10 to 15 gallons per acre for a higher production crop like corn or tomatoes or, or hemp. And so when we look at the dry amino acids, because they are, as you mentioned, a more available form of nitrogen, a smaller, more micronized, more available, absorbable form, you can now use um, a pound per acre or um, and that replaces about five to seven gallons. And so if you wanted to go up to that 15-gallon mark, you would only use maybe two to three pounds at the most. And that dramatically lowers the shipping cost of the material to the farmer. And so I'm all about those leverage points. You're at a farm that has no nitrogen. What are you going to do, dump 10,000 pounds – or I mean tens of thousands of pounds of compost out there? Are you going to go till in a typical nitrogen fertilizer? And so I think that having aminos is a, is a good advantage in that point. 
Yeah, definitely. And I mean, if we use your analogy of the uh, the athletes or the Olympic athletes um, and and supplements, let's let's jump from supplements to steroids. <laughs> I've seen <laughs> yeah. that that both uh, you and uh, <laughs> you, you and myself are playing around with the uh, the triacontinol. How? What's your thoughts on this one? I'm I'm really interested in it. I think it's going to possibly be a game changer. Um, have, have you played around with it yet? I've seen you did a post about it. Um, I've played around with it, but I, I will say, no, I haven't. What I mean by that is I'm guessing if I'm playing with it. I'm just doing natural processes, sprouting alfalfa seeds, which I don't think have any in there, um, and playing with alfalfa meal. I really think that alfalfa compost is probably a good way to get some. And we're talking about the waxy substance, the triacontinol um, that comes from the plant. And alfalfa makes a very good compost. It's got a good carbon to nitrogen ratio. There's some uh, very documented processes on making it. And so um, I think that might be something that I'm interested in. As far as the actual chemical product, you can just go buy an extract of triacontinol. Um, I've not played with it, and I would really, really like to. I guess I haven't because it's not something that I really want to focus on carrying those particular types of products that are um, a little bit less documented, a little bit more out there right now. I want to make sure when someone goes to build a soil, we've at least put it through its paces, and we know there's some value there. Um, and so it's not something I've really done. But um, I know, like you, though, that a lot of growers have, and there's um, – a couple pieces of information. One is that a little goes a long way. They can definitely be abused and cause some weird problems. But for the most part, I'm hearing that, like you, there, there is some huge potential there. And so um, I would encourage everyone to do their own research and see what they can come up with. But for right now, um, I don't have any at my house, and I have never even looked at buying it. Okay, yeah. I've I've played around with it. It's it's a little bit of a nightmare <laughs> to be honest because it's um the molecule itself is it like it's, a, it, it's just a big suspension. Is it an extract of a plant or is it like a chemical thing? I know they're probably both available, right? Yeah, I believe this one's just straight chemically derived, but um the problem is because okay. it is such a waxy molecule in nature, it's like 98% surfactant, 2% tricantinol. That makes sense. Yeah, and then as you said, again, a little goes a long way. I believe it's like uh, one mil of it you mix into like 50 liters or something like this. It's the craziest dilution I've ever seen, basically, for an organic product. Oh, sorry, I shouldn't say that, it, but just for a product that's not blatantly sold, I guess. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, a lot of times you'll find that, and for instance, we carry a yucca product um, that is uh, for the saponin, and the one we carry is 100% yucca it's like a molasses and a certain percentage is a saponin but when you pour it it's like molasses and i believe that on the market when someone's making a product that could be a detracting factor for the home user because it's sloppy it gets on the bottle and so why don't we just dilute it down to about four percent put it in water and now it's really easy to pour and charge you know a thousand times the price and so there's always this effect where people can sell more if it's easier to use but you'll notice the newer products that are really out there like this they haven't been really formulated into an easy-to-use, really expensive. It's typically these crazy dilution rates, these really small amounts, and it's, it, it doesn't make sense on scale. But once we figure out how to use it in actual dosages, I'd imagine there'll be a lot of products out there that'll contain it. I feel like right now when people are talking about Mammoth P, one of the things that there's been a discussion on is, is that really just a tricontinol that they're um, getting around saying because they're saying they're fermenting the alfalfa as part of the extract of the microbes. 
And so whether it's politics or whether it's a label, a lot of times you can get away with the unknown product piggybacking on the one that you can say is is the important thing to be on the label. And so I have no knowledge of that about Mammoth P. I don't I, I could care less. But um, in playing with that, have you talked to anybody that has and compared it to maybe Mammoth P or had had issues with it? I'm just curious. No, I'm the only one I know who's played around with the tricantinol, uh, tricontinol, sorry. Um, but yeah, it's it's mostly my American buds who have played around with the Mammoth P because it's so it's so expensive to get over here. It's like the normal prices plus an arm and a leg for shipping. Yep. Okay. Well, interesting. We'll have to talk about that more later. Maybe I'll get some and, and go for it. I'm, I'm going to do uh, a few different test rounds at the Build-A-Soil store, but one of the things that gets overwhelming is the amount of ideas we have for side-by-sides. I'd love to have you know, a college size or a medical-sized facility that just had nothing but you know, well-documented side-by-sides so we could run tests like this, but Fortunately, with the laws, it's not exactly like barley where we can just have a greenhouse everywhere testing you know, all the varieties for the next year's production. I know what you mean. Well, let's jump on to a topic that's probably going to make a lot of people real butthurt, OMRI registration. This is one that I actually just cannot stand. It's like a huge pet peeve because as far as all the research points to that I've done, a product with OMRI registration is more likely to not be organic than to be organic. Um, but I want to know your opinions on it. You know, I've got a great photo on my Instagram of a big bag of calcium sulfate, like the bluest looking salt you've ever seen, and it's got that big old Omri registration on it. So how do you deal with this uh, conundrum, shall we say? Um, well, at a certain level, if you know what Omri means, you can at least use it as a filter for getting you a certain direction. But you, get, you hit the, the, the nail on the head when you said the word register. Um, it's not a certification. And so the Organic Materials Review Institute reviews products, puts them on a list. So really the, the proper terminology would be listed. And um, that's interesting because all they do is they charge money to put you on a list. And as we all know, when there's money being exchanged to be on a list, a lot of times there's ways to get that done where the product may not be um, necessarily organic, but it's approved for organic production under one scenario or another. So it's a little misleading. Um, and I feel that it probably started out with the right intention. You know, when you follow, and I talked to uh, Clackamas Coots about the origins of some of the processes and how Oregon TILF uh, used to be called TILF, and it was a group of um, a couple of different states, and then eventually they got big enough and broke off, and then you have the California organic farmers, and you have the Oregon TILF, and you have um, all these different uh, institutes, and then you have Omri that comes in and says, okay, well, We've seen all these, and so as long as it meets all of these different ones, we'll put you on the list. Whether you're Oregon Tilt, they might have a Me Too, where they say, okay, well, you passed that. For sure, you can be Omri. Just send us your information. Um, and so the, the, the idea is to communicate about the actual products and make sure that everything's acceptable and transparent for the consumer. So I really like the idea, but it starts to convolute things because as soon as you can't trust it, now you have this misleading badge out there that – um, becomes more of a marketing ploy and a dollar generating machine than actual creating transparency for the consumer. And so I always look for Oregon Telf if I can. And then second to that, I'm not so concerned with certifications if I can meet the producer or if I can get a better understanding of how it's created. 
a lot of times the barrier to these expensive organic protocols is that you have a lot of smaller producers that have higher quality products unable to compete by putting these labels on there, um, which is a good and a bad thing. You know, sometimes the smaller producers also will do things that aren't acceptable on large scale as far as cleanliness or, or packing. And so we're experiencing a lot of this as we grow as a company. Um, we've never sought to put NPK labels or to put Omri listing or to put green clean or anything. It's, it's, it's completely of no value to us because if our products aren't good enough already, going out and buying some label to put on it to me doesn't make it any better. It's just trying to communicate that faster to the customer on the shelf. And we rely on a more direct conversation with our customer and with our uh, material producers. So what, does Omri, uh, is it in Australia? Do they also list a lot of the products out there? Or what do you guys have that would be more like Oregon Tilt? Damn, you caught me out. I should know the answer to who's like the good body to refer to. But there's definitely Omri out here. And- That's okay. I, mean, I, just, I don't know at all what's out there. And so I'm wondering if it's similar out here that it's more of like a political thing than it is an actual yeah. something you can make a purchase decision off of. Because if it says Oregon Tilt, um, I'm confident in buying it. Um, if it says Omri, I'm going to do more research. And so I think that's the difference for me. Yeah, I'm pretty lucky. After um, our last chat, I messaged Steve Solomon and he's been kind enough to be in correspondence with me. So if I've ever got a question, I can usually run it by him. And, you know, he's a goldmine of information. I'm really happy to hear you're talking to him. Um, you know, I don't speak with him often. It's only been a couple times, but he was always so forthcoming with information. And he seemed so passionate that I felt like you two would hit it off well. Yeah, it's interesting. After reading his book, The Intelligent Gardener, upon your recommendation, and everyone else should have read it by now, it's been a year, um, it definitely brought up the idea of, and you even very briefly touched on it, how there's this community of people out there who uh, think that it's very possible that like the overall increase in disease and cancer and things like that could be due to a decrease in the nutrient density within our food. Are you, are you kind of very much on board with that, or you've maybe changed your mind a little bit since then? No, 100%. I feel that it is definitely related to that. Um, We are what we eat. We look at historical numbers. We look at countries that are doing better and start eating more meat and start eating products that are not as nutrient dense and the rate of disease goes up. It's directly correlated. And I feel that anyone that doesn't see that is just lying to themselves because they have something they're more comfortable with. And so um, when you start growing plants and you see a garden and see how quickly deficiencies can affect it, it's, it, it reflects back on you. And I think that it makes you someone more aware of these things Um, to convolute that more. A lot of times we see things. um, There's a quote out there, like every disease can be related to a mineral deficiency. And when you look it up, that quote's actually completely misquoted. It doesn't really exist by the scientist it's quoted to. And so I feel like people can go a little bit overboard. um, And then that turns into products like Shilajit and, you know, um, mineral products that may or may not be necessary um but at the same time if you're getting food that's made from hydroponic bottles i really think that there's going to be a decline in health and when we start looking at calcium and other things that are important to our body and we look at the soil that these products are growing in we see a direct correlation um and so it's just it's so obvious to me it's one of those things that is just almost upsets me when you when you hear that people don't believe that or they think that their uh the new technology is just always the answer and that um, farming organically is not sustainable it can you know feed the people and i feel like a lot of the problems are more to do with 
the fact that we've all just accepted that. Um, and I feel like it's changed. You know, certainly over the last five years, there's been a huge movement. At least it feels that way to me. Maybe I'm just involved in it more. Um, but is it the same over there? Or is there, is there kind of a division where people just like either don't agree with it at all or, or, or it's just obvious? I feel like there's not a lot of middle ground there. Yeah, I think that there, it'd be a much smaller percentage of people who are aware of it. I feel like I was almost a bit in like the twilight zone when I was in Oregon and it was like almost everyone was really concerned about like the use of glyphosate and stuff like that. I was yeah. just like, man, you'd never get this in Australia. Like people are not really that worried about it. Not not to say that it's not to be worried about, but you know what I mean? Like they just stay accepted as you put it. Yeah, interesting stuff. But I guess the point it brings to my mind is, do you think it's almost like a responsibility then if you grow organic to like try to just grow some regular stuff as well, seeing as, you know, you've got all the skills and probably all the gear to do it? Yeah, I think that it it's always been that way, at least for me. I grew up in a cul-de-sac, and then when I moved to Colorado, um, having land and all of this was a little bit new to me. And so the opportunity was a little bit more available. And I think that people that don't have that land but now know how to use a container, they go through the same process. Canvas, to me, was a gateway to a better lifestyle. It taught me how to garden. And I realized that you didn't really need a green thumb. It was just this perpetuated model of, hey, if you want a garden, it's kind of like – you know, it's, it's like playing. You're never really going to do anything. You go get a start from Home Depot and it's never really going to grow because you're going to buy potting soil that doesn't really have anything in it. You're going to be frustrated. You're never going to get any food. And then you're going to realize you spent $300 on four tomatoes and it would have been just better to go to the grocery store. And as soon as you start producing, you know, really good yields of your own cannabis, you start to realize, hey, man, maybe I could do pretty good over here. And while I don't need 100% of my food from the garden, it's on my heart to do that. And I would love it if I had that much time to do that. And I feel like one of the, one of the challenges that we, we face today is that we're, we have the ability to spend a lot more of our day doing other things to produce an income that allows us to buy food. And so, um, it's just, it starts to happen though. And all of a sudden when you have lettuce and more produce and more things that are really a lot, taste a lot better and last longer and are produced by you, they end up working their way into more of your meals and your health will change. Um, everything in your life will change when you start growing organic. And I think that's definitely different from someone who is farming in the typical, the typical methodology. And for me, when I started growing food, because, because of this, I looked at all the NPK bottles that I had and I thought, well, when do I flush my tomatoes? Is this safe to eat? How does this work? And so a lot of those questions started to be get other questions that put me down that rabbit hole of, well, why am I doing this with you know, my cannabis? And so if we jump back to a point you mentioned earlier, this is another one which, you know, grinds my gears. Shilajit Shills. There's only really one out there. We all know who it is. I'm not going to give him any credibility saying his name, but... You know, can we get like a ruling on it? Shilajit is not going to cure your cancer. It's uh, it's not Viagra. It's not um, your replacement for your antidepressant. It's, um, <laughs> yeah, what do you think? Yeah, I think that um, one of the challenges when we're working with nutritional information is that it can be skewed so many different ways. And I highlighted on the conversation of micronutrient and the quote of, you know, every disease being related to some micronutrient deficiency and then catalyzing that out there saying, you know, this product XYZ has every micronutrient and look at they're all in really low levels. 
And so I would encourage you to do your own research. I'm not using any Shilajit products and I'm not saying that they're bad or that they don't have a place. I just didn't jump on the bandwagon because I find that when I do jump on bandwagons, I end up regretting it, at least for my customer base. We try and slow down a little bit, do our research. And if things hold up to the test of time and um, we start to see reason and our research points to um, a purpose, then we want to test it. But one of the things that we've always been a believer of is that if we're after fulvic acid, get fulvic acid. And one of the things that we learned when looking for fulvic acids from Dr. Faust um, is that it's it's a golden liquid that is completely free of any of the uh, colloidal minerals or the fulvic minerals. And if we are after minerals, as a human, I feel like eating plants is the way we're supposed to get our minerals, not by eating mind, mind material. Part of the reason why is there is a ton of research that shows that we don't know much about the periodic table of elements and the uh, slow buildup in our body of even trace amounts of a lot of that periodic table. And so um, I would feel more comfortable eating kelp because of how long we've eaten it for and the trace minerals that are available there and the alginic acid and other materials that come with it to make it safe for us to use. Or when we look at a product like Shilajit, if I want the fulvic, when it is completely open to chelate, it has beneficial properties and you can add it to whatever you'd like to chelate. And so if we, without going too far into the word chelate, just think of that as make a little bit more available uh, because fulvic can, it has this ability of being so molecularly lightweight that it can carry across into the plant nutrients at, a, at an alarming rate. And so um, it, even with normal fulvic acid, if we're using large amounts of aluminous silicate rock dust, and the fulvic acid is releasing that aluminum because it's so good at its job. Is that a problem? And so if we're using shilajit and it already has um, all these minerals in it, are any of those at alarmingly high rates? Or if they're not, would the slow use add up over time? And where we have lack of knowledge, I just tend to stay away from and go to stuff that's been around for um, a longer period of time when it, when it comes to agriculture. And when it comes to efficacy for, versus the cost, um, for instance, Faust was working with Dr. Sen um, of the author of the, um, I forget the name of the book, but the seaweed book. And um, they extracted fulvic and humics from seaweed, but it just wasn't cost effective for agriculture. And so I don't think that, you know, it t it's going to take off for any reason. And so... Um, when we look at shilajit, it comes with the minerals. And so the red flag goes off immediately. Dr. Faust pointed in my head, if you're going to be after humic and fulvics, humic are the molecular weight that are, it's it's different. It's a black, darker, darker product, more like the looks of some of these that comes with all the mineral, where the fulvic is like the hash, the extract, without any of that stuff. And so if you're looking for fulvic, the completely open is not only more cost effective, but it's going to do its job on what you intend. And if you're looking for a micronutrient, I encourage you to do a soil test. We can hit the micronutrient on the head. If you have a micronutrient issue in your body where you feel it's a problem, you can talk to a doctor and we can figure out exactly what that is because some people need iron and some people are high in iron. So it's I just think that blanket approaches are not necessarily the best way to communicate um, these processes. Perfect answer, I think. Uh, to just loop back on what you mentioned, bandwagoning, you don't like to get on them. That's a good thing. I noticed you didn't get on the Neemgate bandwagon. However, our Shilajit friend did, which is all the more hilarious in my opinion. <laughs> um, this was such an interesting one to me, this whole Neem controversy thing, because 
in my mind, it, it was so stupid. Like, if anyone has ever top-dressed with just a handful of neem, within a day or two, they would have seen it's just totally engulfed in fungal hyphae. So the idea that neem just totally retards fungal uh, bacterial colony numbers, I think that was the claim being made ultimately. Um, I just thought it was ridiculous and, and, you know, like it just, it was so obvious that neem was like a positive thing to add to your soil. How did you feel when you first saw it? And more importantly, how did you feel when like a few people kind of started to say that they were believing it and whatnot? Was it just like the world's gone mad? Yeah, I felt like the sky was falling. It was really funny to me. And I got to tell you, no matter what it is, I treat it seriously. I don't want to get this um, cognitive dissonance, I guess, or whatever you'd call it, where I just, um, like you said, oh, that's ridiculous. My firmly held beliefs are superior and correct. And so I'm, I'm always open to challenge those. And so I just run them through a standard series of questions, so to speak, and I compare them to, um, you know, research and information. And so when someone says that it's not going to work because it kills fungus and it's going to cause a detriment, first I take a step back. Um, is there any evidence that a bacterial or fungally dominated soil is going to be any different in production? No, we can look at the compost all day long, but I look at the results and growers that I know are comparing flowers. They're not comparing the fungal domination. Um, now that being said, we work with a number of, um, greenhouses on large scale that are interested in documenting every subsect of information so that they can compare against crop to crop to crop. And when you keep that in mind, you find out that most of the data is completely irrelevant. But when you have a problem, you can start to compare data run to run. And so we're finding that our growers using our soils with neem cake mixed in there and top dresses of neem and karanja and using neem oils, um, they're getting tested at the very same facility, uh, Earthfort, that does a lot of the testing um, through the Ingham camp for the bacterial and fungal uh, domination or the balance there, I should say. And they're doing phenomenally well as far as would be reviewed in the industry. And it would appear as if they uh, wouldn't be using neem cake if that was the point. So for me, it was just immediately I already knew. We already had the testing. We already had the documentation. I know that this was a non-issue. But what I also know is that for every one of my customers that uses products correctly and uses them with balance and with maturity – I feel like uh, there is another couple of customers um, that will use them um, maybe to learn how they work and where the limits are, and they'll use them every time. They'll top dress with massive amounts. They will double the results because if some is good and more is better. And sometimes they're right, sometimes they're wrong, and I feel like it's possible in this case. Maybe that's a possibility, um, and maybe that led to some of the conversation, but the problem with this one is, is it was so ridiculous to me. I didn't follow most of it. As soon as I figured out that um, it didn't pass my, my my test as far as being really something I needed to pay attention to, I pretty much disconnected at that point. And I feel like everyone's entitled to their own opinion. They can share whatever information they feel is true. Um, and then I always ask if there's some reason for someone to lie or some reason to manipulate the data for the financial gain. And some people mentioned that I don't, you know, I didn't do any research there to see if that's an a part of the process, but um, it's just not even an issue. Neem cake is not something that I would worry about at all, especially when used according to our recommended dosages. For sure. So, an interesting point I picked up, oh, by the way, thanks for pointing out my logical fallacy. <laughs> um, the thing I noticed was a lot of the comments I read in the uh, surrounding the topic was they would say, oh, this is just like 
um, Ingen's teachings taken to the nth degree, you know? Do you think that is the truth or that was a misinterpretation in itself? And I think maybe what they're alluding to is that she believes, um, maybe not specifically that Neem retards uh, fungal dominance, but that I think less fungal dominance is better. Yeah, and um, when you look at the numbers, um, I'm not somebody who follows that process, and so it's not of huge importance for me to memorize the balance of bacteria count versus fungal count that we're looking for in all of these reviews. But it's not like you want a fungally dominated soil. There's a balance that's supposed to be there. And like I mentioned, we're seeing really good balance, and a number of our customers are using neem cakes, and so it just became a non-issue to me. Um, but I do feel that without me getting really deep into researching neem gate, immediately it was brought to my attention and it was a thought that I had that this was taking the Ingham thing, you know, to that, to that nth degree. And the reason I say that is in the past in working with Tim Wilson, microman, and he's been, you know, really helpful in my business and helpful in answering gardening questions without really any financial motivation. Even the products he offers are so poorly thought out as far as how much profit w- would be there for him. It's, it's really all about the gardener. Um, unlike Ingham, who I have respect for, I don't have any reason, you know, I've not been to her classes to say that they're bad or anything, but she has a little bit more of a financial motivation um, to the information being regarded as absolute truth. And so when I talk to um, Coot and he mentions that um, Tad over at Keep It Simple who I think already did a podcast on this topic, had studies going against that and that his father, Leon, was actually mentioned in the Ingham um, intro as really as the as the creator or the inventor, the first person to use compost tea in the process that we discussed today. And they are fully of the agreement that there is you know a benefit to using neem cake. It further convolutes the situation. And so um, – I think that if I were to ask Tim Wilson, if I were to ask um, Tad, if I were to add, ask anybody that's been involved in this whole process, a lot of times there's been a differing viewpoint in the exact opposite of what the Elaine Ingham camp says. What's, What's so, so funny, funny is both of these processes work. You can use neem cake. You don't have to. You can use molasses. You can use fish. You can do anaerobic. You can do aerobic. And I feel like we're still seeing gardeners produce killer results. So um, as with anything in life, does the person you're following have the results you're looking for? And if so, do that. If they don't, don't do that. And what I can't find is people that are having crazy high fungal dominance getting amazing crops and showing me that they're superior than the other methods of bacterial-dominated soil. And so I don't feel like it's a metric that's really worth investing a lot of money into. I think that quality compost will create a quality result. Whatever balance that fungal and bacterial is is irrelevant to me. Yeah, fantastic. And I remember I took a look into that myself and I think Tad and his dad were also some of the first people to take like really high quality photos of uh, like microscopic photos of the fungal tea and, you know, like actually be able to see the bacteria and stuff. So, they're definitely some dudes to listen to on the issue. What I did like is you mentioned Coot there and I've seen recently, you know, you guys have released your official Coots line where, you know, like a little bit of that's going towards Coots when someone buys it, which is awesome. It raised this idea in my mind. Do you think um, Coot's like as a, a recipe, so to speak, is, is it just a recipe or is it something he can kind of claim ownership over in a sense? Because I was thinking 
you could just try to build a soil, so to speak, and you've just built it to what you think is pretty good. And then someone comes along and they're like, oh, yeah, that's like basically Coots Mix. And you know what I mean? It's kind of like, it, it's just kind of, it seems to me like it's almost just a name for a rough amount of uh, amendments in a soil. You know what I mean? It's almost like a cake recipe, you know? It's like, and so it, it raised this idea in my mind of like, yeah, do you think it's like a, a name recognition thing or an association thing? Like, it's a weird topic, you know? Like, should should Coot get compensated if someone uses the name Coots Mix or is it just in kind of the general domain at this point? Um, I think that he would say that he doesn't take any right to any of that stuff, that it's totally in the general domain. He's regurgitating a complete um, information that was taken from many other sources. And so build a soil, as much as we could have a build a soil recipe, it wouldn't be something that was mine. And what I mean by that is it's just a culmination of ideas. And what's so great about this is, like Coot, he turned me on to the no-need uh, bread-making process. If you haven't looked into it, go on YouTube, type in no-need bread. And there's this guy, uh, Artisan Bread with Stev or Steve, S-T-E-V, on there. You'll find it. And just the regular recipe is incredible. It's just a little bit of flour, a little bit of salt, water, yeast. And its key is using time, a 24-hour or 12-hour, 8-hour, you know, at least an overnight type of fermentation. And it makes one of the best breads I've ever had. It's just bread, though. Is it Steve's bread? No, but it, that term, basically, the no-need bread, now points to him because he is the one that has perpetuated sharing that information with everyone so they can benefit from it. And Coot took uh, the basic um, you know, Solomon three-way lime mix from Steve Solomon. We mentioned him with the dolomite and the gypsum and the oyster shell or whatever the recipe was. And he put his own spin on it, and he took the recommended amounts of certain dry amendments and played with them over time. So if you followed Lumper Dogs and Clackamas Coot over the years in the forums, the Coots mix changed over time. It was the Coots Fix-It mix. It was these different um, recommendations. When Build a Soil started, we tried a number of different soil recipes. What we found is that the simpler recipe with the best compost always outproduced as far as from a balance, and you could, you could certainly add to it what it needed. But if you started with a, an unbalanced soil that just had the whole kitchen sink thrown in, it didn't make for a better product. So I guess what Coot taught us was use critical thinking when finding premium ingredients that aren't wasteful as far as cost. And then from there, you cannot amend your way to a good soil. So our Coots mix is great, but it is just amendments. You need the best compost and the amendments to marry this whole process together. Um, I certainly give him credit for the coot name and the reason why we're actually paying him a percentage is we feel like it's going to help us sell more in the sense that we want to, instead of everyone call whatever out there is a coots mix, we want the coots mix to be exactly what we discussed, what he helped us procure. And what I mean by that is if you mix some crappy kelp from the, from uh, you know some random ocean and you take some um, seed meal and you take some you know, uh, run-of-the-mill rock dust, and you, you call it a coots mix, I don't think it's doing honor to the name. And so that's why we wanted to make sure that it's separated and highlighted. It's also really great that we can pass on some financial um, compensation to him, um, mainly because he helps us behind the, he, behind the scenes so much still, um, exercising these ideas, running through processes, looking at different composts. Talk to him several times a week and I just feel like he, he gives so much without ever asking that if this really does work and it can provide an income through him through retirement, I would feel like Build a Soil did something. 
And um, we're not the only ones. You know, there's some other people that I think are trying to find ways to support Coot. And um, I think anybody should support who brought them to the party and support who supported them when they didn't have anything. And um, Coot, that name and that association has done really well for us. Um, I think partially because uh, he's always been a part of my life as far as gardening. And so it was authentic. It wasn't something we were just trying to brand off of. Yeah, really organic. So, um, and then the next thing was the barley was kind of the next evolution. And then uh, moving away from glacial rock test towards basalt. So I feel like Coots Mix is a little bit specific as far as where it's at, but it'll probably be evolving even you know forward in the future. Without a doubt. So one of the interesting posts I came across last night, which I think some people might be a little upset about in Australia because it's insect frass. It's one of those things where people are really excited about it, but... It's, it's not widely available. There's a few companies who are starting to produce some and a few people are getting their hands on it. But then I found your post, oh my God, less than 1% chitin. Is it just a complete waste of time? Um, maybe, but I think that any you know biologically natural waste product has some benefit. The challenge is, is I feel like if you get a salesperson and a scientist together and you just start researching the chemical makeup of any product, you can come up with some benefits to it. You know, when I was a kid, I remember those cereal commercials that would say, it'll take 12 bowls of this cereal to equal one of this. You're like, yeah, for iron. I mean, it's not exactly an apples to apples comparison. And so um, it's just important, I, I think, to keep that in mind. Does that make sense? Yeah, well, I mean, outside of insect frass, then what is a source to get some actual existent chitin from? Well, um, we have a product that is one of the first, you know, documentable guaranteed chitin products, and so we're interested in that. Um, but crustacean meal has chitin in it. The manufacturer of the chitin product we use makes it from a consortium of ground-up insects. And so what that's interesting is that normally we would buy the waste products. So you have an insect farm. They sell insects to you know pet companies and people that use insects for all these different purposes. All the waste is considered a frass. That frass is now sold as um, a product. And so the frass is more about the waste. It's not about the production, but the insects are. And so this product called OptiVeg that we carry is an 8.1%, I believe is the number, of chitin, and that's because they actually micronize the insects, not the waste. And the waste has such a low amount of um, actual chitin in it is because the chitin comes from the insect. And so there's a little bit of dead material along with the waste, and that determines the variable amount of chitin in the insect frass. Now, it's still a waste product like a guano or like a chicken manure or anything else. So there's some, there's some value, and it's typically that the input material, whatever that's feeding these bugs, was going to be micronized and made slightly more bioavailable by working it through a bug. So there again is this theme. Instead of taking raw minerals or raw materials, we feed them either through worm bins, through animals, through bugs, and we get a more bioavailable, closer to a plant form of food, and that is faster to work through the soil food web. So um, insect frass has total viability. In fact, one of the places we're looking at right now is we found a place in Canada. It's pretty far away, but the size of their facility and their ability to create a product from a waste makes it um, still lower cost than what we can find locally. And the frass they produce is from soldier flies, and they actually recycle a ton of organic waste, just tons of produce and bad lettuce and vegetables and everything else. And it gets worked by these soldier flies, or soldier fly larvae, or, you know, I'm very unfamiliar with the process. Turns it into a frass. We just got our first sample, and we're looking at it. So I think that 
instead of just paying a top dollar for a, um, a, a new bandwagon type product, I think that it'd be more important if we're after chitin, get a chitin product. If we just want a, um, a kind of a vegan uh, waste product because these insects are feeding on vegetables instead of animal material, it probably has some value. But if it's super expensive, it's it would be better if it was recycling a waste locally and you can get it at a cost-effective price. And so we didn't add frass to any of our new recipes. It's kept as kind of a side product that we use in recommendation to get an ecosystem. So what I mean by that is when you're top dressing, you're putting worms in, you're getting an ecosystem going. To me, it would make sense to put some dead bugs and some insect waste and and all of these things that might build the ecosystem without actually introducing live bugs and problems for our type of growing. So, so you mentioned Canada just there. Are you going to look to expand to possibly worldwide shipping now that you guys have got Canada sorted? Because I've had a few questions from people who would consider getting some stuff even here in australia um yeah we're actually working on that right now we've got um our logistics team is we're growing as a company and so that allows us to focus on projects that would have taken too much time away from the day to day and so as we go through each winter which is slightly slower than the chaos of the springtime it allows us to grow and expand and so we're looking at worldwide shipping I don't know how soon it'll become available and it'll be on key products that make sense, that are lightweight, that may have some viability. And I want to be careful not to just start shipping stuff all over the world for you know no purpose. Um, but it's interesting. You start working as a, cust- as a company and someone calls you and says, look it, I just want to play with this chitin product. I have no way to get it locally. No one's ever going to make it here. There's no reason to yet. Um, without waiting 10 years for someone to do it, can you just ship me a small amount so I can satisfy my curiosity? And I'm like, yeah, I'd love to do that. And it makes sense. Um, But there's tariff codes and there's import fees and taxes and there's all these hoops to jump through. So we're getting very close. We've been able to ship to Canada recently and very accurately predict the fees and make a a good experience for our customer. So as we're more confident that we're not going to just cause customer service nightmares, we're going to start rolling that out. And I'd love to look at Australia as you and I both know, the shipping costs are just outrageous, but I think that for the hobbyist and for the enthusiast, a couple of products, um, it actually might it might work. And I know there's products in other countries that I'd love to play with, and maybe as a cool gift idea even, and maybe not as, as like a sustainable practice. So we'll see. Just as like an overarching question, because this one you could probably answer it forever. Do you feel as though we're slowly moving towards like, how should we say, like a a homogenized growing style that will be eventually quite specific for cannabis in that, you know, at the moment it feels like people are incorporating, you know, bits of K&F, you know, Coots recipe, a whole bunch of other little supplements here and there. Do you think after a long enough period of time, we might have our own kind of grow style, you know, like the canatil type thing, you know, just some word like that, where it's, yeah, it's just, you know, borrowing principles from a whole bunch of other things to the point where it's almost its own thing. I don't know. I think the reason why I don't think that that's necessarily going to be coined is that, um, We've stolen from so many other processes. It seems like anybody at the forefront of production, like any world record pumpkin grower, world record tomato grower, somebody who's into gardening, we've all come to the same answers taking a different path. And same with cannabis growers. I think the difference is the amount of time and money we're willing to invest in this crop. And so um, where it may become coined is when we look at production, if we were going to do acreage production and you were to call, for instance, for instance, like a local co-op or a local farmer's outfit that would 
give you pricing on fertilizer for your corn or whatever's grown traditionally in your area. Um, I'd imagine we'll have a line drawn in the sand where they say, hey, are you growing you know, cannabis style or are you growing you know, regular style? And the, and the difference there would be you know, the ability to spend $1,000 an acre versus 50 bucks an acre because of the actual end use of the product. And so I feel like anytime you have a really high cash crop, you're going to see similar practices where we're just trying to maximize the yield and the quality because those would be important. Um, but to me, that's permaculture. I don't really think we're going to have to coin something new. Yeah, I almost figure it'll probably just be continually evolving anyway. So, something that I have noticed though, which I'm not sure whether it actually works, I wanted to run it by you. I've seen people using like various dehydrating machines and using vegetable waste, most notably banana skins. And so then they'll have like, you know, this really dehydrated banana skin. They then grind it up, mix it in the soil. And I was like, that's so simple and so brilliant. But does it actually work? Um, that's interesting. I've never, you know, considered doing that. To me, it fits one of the processes that we talked about. And so I like to think of things um, in groups and then it's easier to think about. So we talk, you know, the fulvic acid over here, aminos over here. These are all things that lower energy. Uh, one of the steps that we talked about was micronization. So you take products that are nutrient dense, you micronize them and they're more available. Uh, to me, in a no-till situation, um, all of those micronized products are not available to the plant until they're processed through the soil food web. So similarly that we mix alfalfa meal, the fact that we mix in neem seed meal, all of those are just more affordable waste products that make sense to use as a fertilizer. Nobody says you can't do the same thing with freeze-dried, expensive, high-end products um, or waste products of your own. So it totally makes sense. Um I think that um, the difference would be I'd probably use some of those amendments more like a worm food in my mulch layer so they can then make them available to the plant. And it, I always find myself getting infatuated with wanting to learn more about how to be in control and give them nutrients when they need it and really treat the plants really well through that soil by feeding it the best stuff on earth, whatever that may be, purple, barley, and banana peeled, freeze-dried and all this and Korean natural farming. But I feel like that's just because we all love this end result. We love the process. We love the plants. We want to continually be working towards them and doing something for it. Um, I don't I don't know if necessarily the plant cares that it's banana peels or if it's self-alpha meal or if it's you know some other source of that nutrient. And at a certain point, we're getting away from the fact that um, keeping above that limiting factor, keeping the soil aerated, keeping it ability to deliver nutrients, keeping everything watered properly, the environment. At, certain, at a certain point, all these things are much more important than the exact source of the NPK, the micronutrients, and all those things that will be delivered to the plant. And that's why we had that discussion about is it better that it's organic or is it more important that it doesn't hurt the earth? Because at the end of the day, it gets broken down um, through the soil food web into basically a chemical form of nutrient. The difference is, is that delivery method being carbon uh, for organics. And I think that cannabis being a C4 plant, it just makes so much sense that organics is the best way to go. So with that being said, what do you think is the big difference between worm castings and say like a high quality compost? Are they, are they equal or, you know, I guess we've been alluding to the idea that the, the castings is going to be your best bet. So, you know, what what makes it better ultimately? And for people out there who maybe don't have a, a good bulk supplier, do you think it still justifies the cost of, because often it can be a fair bit more expensive, you know, than just regular compost? 
Uh, no, I think it's not worth the money. I think that they're worth the money if you know the qualities there. The problem is, is that just like compost, it can be made from anything. Compost doesn't mean anything. It's just a generic term. Worm castings doesn't mean anything. Um, oftentimes, you'll find people feeding uh, really low-end products and purina worm chow and just kind of the bare minimum to the worms. Or they're producing worms for fishing and the castings are a waste. They have no thought into what goes into it. At home, you can uh, recycle waste like newspaper and stuff, or you could actually feed thermophilic compost with premium uh, plant materials and be actually after creating the perfect compost or for you, the perfect compost. And so there's always going to be quality differences. The difference with worm castings is they're always expensive and they're always uh, and they're often not the same quality. And so if you find a good source, you know what their feedstock is and you like them, they're probably worth the money. But a lot of times once you find that quality casting and they're produced in volume, they're not as expensive as the the um, the lower quality stuff that's bagged up and produced in large scale. And so at your house, I would really encourage you to um, start set up your own worm bin. I think it's the biggest difference maker in an organic garden. It allows you to get worms for a much lower cost and put them in your containers from your own worm bin. You breed this um, – consortium of predator mites and rogue beetles and all these things start to come together and they help complete that no-till ecosystem. Um, but beyond that, you also have some extras. So if I was just going to get high quality compost or high quality castings, the difference to me is that castings are typically a lot more bang for the buck and you can make teas from them that go further. They're more nutrient dense. And so we learned a while ago following Coot's recipe of using, you know, one third castings, was just a recipe for failure when it came to the available castings on the market. They're just too salty or they're too rich in potassium or some ingredient based on how they're produced where using such a high volume produces a lot of issues, at least in the beginning. His vermicompost is very different. It takes a long time to make and it's it's produced from materials that he has knowledge of and it's balanced and it's produced with the end result of, of having that. And so he can do it at the high, high volume that he does and have really, really good results. And you'll experience that also at home if you're able to make your own castings. Also, we keep going back to this thing where we're talking about micronization. You take worms and you work a compost, it's going to be a smaller end result. The red wigglers that we prefer will break it down into very, very small pieces of individual castings. Each one of those coated in calcium carbonate, which is part of that balance in the soil, and coated in bacteria and enzymes and secondary metabolites from the plants that we fed through it. And that is all richer than thermophilic compost, which can destroy a lot of those benefits. So the two complement each other. I think they're best used in combination. And when you don't have the budget for the castings, it makes sense that if you just put worms in the container, you're going to make your own castings on demand. And if you can set up your own worm bin, you can just work more affordable compost into castings. And so I think that uh, from a budget perspective, when we work with larger scale, we just don't see people buying $20,000 of castings to do the luxury top dresses and teas nonstop because uh, you get very good results from the quality compost. And then you can put worms right in the container. Killer. So, a question people have been asking me a lot, and I don't have a very good answer for them, is fabric pots versus those plastic smart pots. I've got some people who say to me, they think the plastic smart pots are better because it's like easy to use. Because a lot of the complaints around fabric pots are how, you know, like if you water them, sometimes it comes out the side and it's not actually penetrating down as well as you'd like. And I always reply to that saying, 
to me, that sounds like you just need to become a little more familiar with how to use them. I understand the problem you're discussing, but I think over time you'll learn to avoid that and kind of learn to water better within them. However, the plastic pots, they avoid that issue because there's all the holes on the outside of them, but uh, the top ones, uh, there's no holes. So the water has to penetrate down first before it even has a chance to leak out the sides. Have you got any opinions on these ones? Like, do you think fabric's better than plastic smart pots? What's your thoughts? Um, yeah, I, I definitely have an opinion there. Mine's similar to yours. Uh, to be clear, I think so. The plastic out here, the smart pot is a brand from High Caliber, and they're a fabric pot. And so the plastic smart pot that you're mentioning, like a, not a recycled plastic, but like a hard black nursery pot, right? Yeah, it's got these like the, the concave and convex ridges around the outside with the holes in them. Yeah, I've used all sorts of things and I've used plastic pots and I don't think that there's a, really an issue there, but I'll highlight on a couple subjects. Um, one of them being that agronomists I talked to and topsoil and the, and the microbial life and Ingham and a lot of the stuff we've talked about um, that conversation revolves around uh, aerobic activity and that means more oxygen than than not or air in the soil and so that can be done by having a highly aerated mix and having soil texture that allows oxygen to stay in there and the porosity of the drainage or the aeration material uh, but to add to that when you're trying to create this larger soil which one of the problems can be overwatering, it makes sense to have a fabric container that allows you to air prune the roots and create that benefit where it doesn't wrap around where it actually air prunes and sin, sends a signal for new root, root growth. Um, and it also makes sense because um, the air that it lets in through the sides and creates this diversity of moisture zones. And like you mentioned, once you start using either a wetting agent or watering properly, slowly, more often, whatever it takes, um, you'll stop that running out the side. It won't be an issue whatsoever. And if it does happen, it'll more importantly highlight that you're actually getting dry pockets and there may be a bigger issue and it's time that you slowed down and water <laughs> properly because you're cutting corners and now all of a sudden it's running out of the side of your of your fabric pot. Um, when I have a really good grow and things are going really well, it seems that's never an issue because I've been tending to it so often that the slow watering, the constant attention means that it's at an even moisture level the whole time and around the edges it's slightly drier and there's this like root pruning that happens. And I feel like that's why a larger container does work. Um, and also when I'm uh, vermicomposting, using that breathable container means the worms are going to be more alive. Uh, the biology is going to be more aerobic and it's not going to ferment on accident or kill all the worms. And so I feel like it gives you a, an advantage. It does have disadvantages. You know, out here in Colorado, it's super dry. And so outdoors, if you're not able to water consistently and you don't have a big enough container, maybe something with solid sides would be better. Um, worms do just fine in a plastic worm bin as long as you don't overwater. And your plants will do really good in a plastic container as long as you don't overwater. And if you're someone who wants to water less, maybe that's important. And maybe it'll work for you. But I just tend to use the fabric pots. I think they work really well for our style. And it's always what I've been taught. And I've tried, um, you know, to go back and forth and I end up using fabric pots. So I would just suggest if that you haven't tried a fabric one versus a plastic or if you have and you're having issues, um, talk to someone who has used one and make sure you're using it right, just like you mentioned. So I remember last time we spoke, I think ultimately I kind of got the answer out of you that if you had to choose between having a cover crop or top dressing, if you could just do one or the other you would take top dressing. 
And in the recent um, pictures I saw, I noticed you have a cover crop. And so I was a bit surprised. And then in like the very following video, you just dumped a bunch of soil on top of it. And so I was thinking, have you, cha- have you changed your mind back? Or maybe you think the two are good now? Like, where do you sit on that one now? I guess one of the habits that I've noticed that successful people have is they typically like to have both. Um, and you'll always hear that phrase, you can't have your... Uh, cake and eat it too and everybody says no I can and it'd be better to have both the phrase is actually a little different it's you can't eat your cake and have it depending on how you say it it means something different and the same thing goes here Uh, I like to have cover crop I like top dress I think they're both really important Um, I like the cover crop because it's it's fun to see more of a diverse crop growing in the soil the challenges that I mentioned before were if I just told everybody to cover crop um, a lot of times there's a lot lost in, in communication or lost in translation and all of a sudden they have six foot tall cover crop growing out of their container and they have a five inch tall cannabis plant and it becomes com- competitive against the main crop. And so um, I just recommended people if I was going to choose one to, to do top dressing, it's going to be more effective. And then we look at, you know, large scale. All of a sudden we're looking at an acre. It doesn't make any sense at all the top dress. Cover crop becomes the absolute gold standard and it has to be done and it has to be managed over the long term. And then if you use animal husbandry, that's kind of how you get that top dressing. Um, and then depending on soil testing, you can always amend, but it's just so expensive. So I feel like there's always room for both. Um, I like that mindset whenever I can. I don't want to have to pick one thing versus the other if they're both good. But you can certainly abuse both those, like I like I'm doing in this grow. We're doing a lot of everything, so it's been fun. Just touching back on the soil testing, how important is it to soil test in the sense of? Do you think if you're you know reasonably consistent in your inputs and you know you're how should I put this? You, you you're not a stupid person, you know. Like you you read the plants, you, you try to keep a bit of an idea of what's going on. Do you think you can get away with not using a soil test and just getting your pots to go time and time again with a bit of knowledge and you know some research at times? Or do you think at the end of the day you do really need to get a soil test at some point? Otherwise, things will become unmanageable, and you're probably not going to be able to self-diagnose it. Um, I think the difference on who is who who is asking the question. What I mean by that is that. If you are somebody who is depending on your crop because of the production that's coming from it, then you can't afford to have variations in yield. You can't afford to have things that take time to balance or the results that come from not having the soil testing. I think I think you can totally get away with it. And the average gardener is not going to benefit hugely from getting the soil test. Um, and, and here's the reason why. We're starting with recipes where we know every input. And it's different than testing your native soil, which may have some great disparities in it. The the then difference becomes, like you said, not messing it up or not being, you know, just not being stupid and, and really and really pushing your soil one direction or the other and using products that may not be acceptable or or copious amounts of them. I think that most gardeners will have tremendous success never using a soil test. It's just like they're not going to need a microscope to brew compost tea. Um, but as soon as you're relying on the budget, I think soil testing will be the most affordable difference maker because it can highlight some things um, that are important, like all of a sudden there's no yield and you just keep trying all these different things, but none of it overcame the fact that there's no boron in the soil and that it's causing a major deficiency that you weren't aware of. And it's not very often that we see such an aha moment when we do a soil test because soil testing is not 
super accurate. There's still a lot lacking depending on how it's tested, and we can go really deep into that. I mean, you have to weigh the soil to get the results to be what you want. Most people don't weigh it. I mean, there's so many different considerations there. Um, a lot of times, the soil test can sometimes start to provide some problems for the grower um, depending on how they interpret that. And so I feel like most gardeners can just go without it. But um, once you start to understand it, like once you read Steve Solomon's book, you go, oh my goodness, instead of me just doing, as he says, put some more on it, have a little bit of everything, which does work in organics, you can have a lot of it. He just highlighted that if you're missing something that your everything doesn't have, like boron or uh, manganese or whatever it may be, it's deficient, you're never going to get there by just adding a whole bunch of stuff. Um, and that's changing a little bit when we look at no-till because some of the ingredients that we're using cover those bases. So if you are using a little bit of kelp, if you are using some dynamic accumulators that are really well-rounded, like in the Coots mix, um, it's, it's much harder to have an issue that a soil test is going to re- be required to fix. And um, I guess to continue this long thought, when I started testing our soil, I was kind of holding my breath because I was really scared to see what the results were as far as what I read was good, even though I knew our soil worked. And it was funny to find that Coot, although he's not a fan of soil testing and doesn't really advocate for it based on his requirements, uh, his recipe follows the profile um, and fits a soil test perfectly when done with good compost. So either way, uh, Solomon and Coot ended up at the same place, uh, whether it was from the gut or from a soil test, I think the main difference is in those micronutrients, which, you know, kelp meal can't necessarily overcome them from scale and production as far as, um, you know, end times and having to produce your own food and actually live off of it. And nutrient deficiencies would become much more important. And so just as maybe a bit of a weird question, have you ever heard of anyone doing or I guess in worst case scenario, any possible negative health effects of trying to bokashi pet waste i've noticed that's something a few of the bokashi companies are pushing now they've got like these kits where you can where you can put the pet manure into it and um you know bokashi i think they say you put it in the ground and then it's like similar to the regular bokashi when it's done have you ever heard of anyone doing that or would you be apprehensive or nope no i think it's a great idea um i, I wouldn't use it for the garden just like any you know, off the grid setup, if you're actually going to be using your own waste and it becomes valuable in your animal's waste, you have to understand whether it's something that can be used on a food crop, whether it's composted, whether it's, you know, gray water, whether it's raw. And some of this stuff is, is not to be used on your, you know, your main crop. It would be to grow something else that feeds something else and then is eventually used. And so, um, yeah, I guess that's just kind of my thoughts on that. Okay. And so, I wanted to know your opinion. When you're doing like a top dress of a whole bunch of amendments, maybe at the end of the cycle, you know, you're chucking a whole bunch of new goodies on top. Do you like to blend them all up if possible? Because what I noticed is I I seem to get like a crazy increase in bug numbers if you blend it up. And that's kind of a no-brainer, you know, like it's all a higher surface area, more stuff available for bugs to eat up. But in one instance, I noticed it almost got too out of control and it was just like full on and I was getting a bit worried. And so I almost started to think, hmm, maybe I shouldn't blend up the malt barley and stuff because I think that was the source of the, uh, the issue anyway. But long story short, yeah, do you have an opinion on whether you should really try to like almost micronize your top dress like we've mentioned or sorry, micronize like we've mentioned the top dress or do you view it as more of like a, a, a longer, uh, longer lasting and it kind of leaching the nutrients out slowly? 
Um, I think it depends on what we're after. If, if we know we're after like a singular ingredient, it's going to make a difference. Um, if we're using a little bit more intelligence to create a product, you know, at home we can get away by using a little bit extra of a raw material. But if I'm going to buy an amino acid product, I want it to be the purest and the most available because of the shipping and the cost that goes into that. Um, but when you consider all things being the same and you're going to either blend an ingredient or not at home, I tend to buy stuff like most of us that's at least fairly broken down. Um, and for the most part, that that difference in texture to me provides a little bit of fast release, a little bit of slow release, and a little bit of really slow release depending on the size of the ingredient texture. And I'm okay with that. So I, I never really blend it up. Um, like you, I've done the malted barley and ground it up really fine. And I find that you can use smaller amounts, like you notice an increased level of activity. Um, and then we've also played with in our new soil recipe that I've got in a 4 by 4 geoplanter over uh, some grow stone as kind of a makeshift sub-irrigated planter. Uh, we mixed malted barley into that soil recipe, and it was milled, which is kind of like a, a chunky texture. It's like taking each of the barley seed and breaking it into maybe four or five pieces and mashing it. It's not really a fine powder. And we find that that worked really well, and we hope that you know the soil test um, comes back on it and it looks you know equally well. But the plants in it are doing good. Um, I think if I micronized it, it may have even increased the effect of how hot the, to- the soil temperature got. And so that's another thing to consider when you're mixing soils. If you micronize everything besides just the top dressing, like you mentioned, it can cause some effects where just everything is released so fast it may not be advantageous. So um, consider what you're using it for. And I guess factor that in when you're going to consider grinding something. So one of the uh, recent videos you put up that really caught my eye was one about spinosads. And you said that uh, people had had lab tests that were like testing hot when they had used it. In your mind, does this kind of put it in like maybe not the same category, but like a similar category as using like abamectin? Like are you like, you know, would you avoid smoking something that's going to test positive for spinosad? Or do you think it's like a much more safer thing than the usual things that you are not wanting to test positive? Uh, I'm not worried about the spinosad at all. Um, And I just, I I guess maybe I should be. Um, But for whatever reason, I feel it's natural enough and and how they found it, how it's been used for a long time. I don't think there's any really negative effects. And I think that there's kind of some bandwagoning that happens when people hear something about it and jump on it. And I heard through the grapevine that people were testing hop for it. I never really did a lot of my own research. And so I just kind of loosely mentioned that that's the story that's going on right now. But you'll notice deeper in that post we got into the conversation. I was playing a little bit of a devil's advocate. I wanted that post to get some conversation and have people talking because I knew someone would say it's going to kill bees and I knew someone would say that you're going to fail testing. I happen to know that since then people have been using that product out of curiosity and using it according to the directions and they're not failing testing, even when using it in flour. And we also find people that are um, uh, saying that it doesn't hurt the bees. So I did some research, and there's white paper showing that when used properly, for instance, not spraying it on bees, um, it doesn't hurt them. And so, uh, I mean, water would hurt bees. A stick would hurt them if I go knock their nest down. And so I feel like it, you have to take everything with a little bit of grain of salt. I found it funny. Some people were re- recommending other products that were supposedly safe for bees. And when I researched those products, it said very clearly on the label not to use it around bees. And so bees has become kind of the new, 
I'm, I love bees. I absolutely want them to be safe. I want no issues with it. But it's become like a new hype word where everybody's scared about it. And so I feel like for a while, it got a little out of control. And I think that the consensus in the scientific community is that spinocet is safe and it doesn't hurt the bees when used appropriately. And outdoors, that means using it at night when the bees aren't on your flowers. And that means probably not using it in flower because you shouldn't need to if it's used properly. And that would eliminate all of the reason for concern. Um, but Avermectin is a deworming agent, and I think that I, sh- I would be concerned with that. And so it's different. When, when someone says it tests hot, that doesn't mean it's bad. That means that they tested for it and it was there. Um, I feel like that also is indicative of them using it probably incorrectly. Yeah. Okay. And so just as a bit of a general question, how do you feel about the Dragonfly Earth Medicine products? And would you guys ever consider stocking them? Um, people have asked us that in the past. There's not really been a huge reason to as far as I, I'm concerned. What I mean by that is everyone has their own style of growing, and I'm trying not to dictate that style. And so by doing so, I carry products that are a little bit more ubiquitous um, in use and aren't so uh, – I guess their formulas, a lot of the stuff that – when I look at an ingredient list, I oftentimes – find myself not wanting to purchase certain products because I want to have a more singular product available to my customer, like the amino acid where there's one ingredient. Um, the root wise, I know a lot more about those microbial products. Um, the humic acid material that's used in their product, I don't like at all. And it's clearly labeled on there. And so the red flags went off right away. Whether that's right or wrong, how I was taught to research ingredients had told me that I a certain of the products I, I didn't want to share with my customers in the sense that I wasn't certain about them. Then I sense um, found that a lot of our customers use their products and absolutely love them. And so I found myself in a position where I was thinking, okay, well, there obviously are products that are being effective. They are in alignment with our customers' core beliefs. And so what's in them? And some of them have some interesting ingredients. And so if I was to be someone who really wanted to get the product, just the type of person that I am would probably lead me to making my own, buying some of the source ingredients. And I love that they're transparent about it. And if you don't want to go to all the work of making your own stuff and you like their ingredients, you can go buy their products and use them. And not only that, there's a whole community of people that can kind of tell you how to work with it. So it's been this interesting thing. Um, but I have never carried them, and I, I just don't really have an interest. And part of it is I don't think I could really help them, their brand at all. Anybody that buys build a soil can certainly go get the Dragonfly directly from them or from someone probably even closer. They've done a great job of getting their products out there in the market. Appropriate answers. So we've got a few questions on IPM here. An interesting one I've been thinking about is, have you ever noticed a meaningful effect from the use of diatomaceous earth in regards to IPM? You know, every time I see people use it, I, I generally try to follow up and say, you know, how did you find it to work? And most of them give the same answer, you know, as soon as you water, it gets clumpy, don't think it has really any effect after that. It's just, and also that it's just quite hard to manage and use in general, you know. Do you find it works? And if so, how is, what's the best way to optimally use it? Um, really good question. You'll notice a recent post that we put on Instagram highlights this and it's a little bit messy how we do it and it may not be the ideal approach, but it's the only way that I've found to work and I'll share that methodology with you. Um, at work, we have a warm bin. It's a hanging warm in. It is a breathable fabric, very similar to a backpack. 
and it, it allows it to hold about four cubic feet of heavy compost with worms in it up on this two by four stand that we built. And we have a bucket underneath it to pull the worm castings out. And at the top, um, and it's got a zipper net that keeps most of the flies in, but um, typically there's none. The vermicomposting is really clean when done right. We top dressed from an outside um, container that had sunflowers and a whole bunch of soil and compost tea scraps and stuff in it. And it brought in a ton of fungus gnat and fly larva and all sorts of stuff. And so it was just full underneath this net. And a lot of them were flying through because they were so small. And so we um, put about an inch layer all the way across with diatomaceous earth. Just because we're not growing a plant, we just wanted to see if it would really work. Because in the past, I would just dust a little bit and I never had any good results. If I used too much, it would clump up. And... Um, Man, I got to tell you, the gnats were instantly gone. The flies were instantly gone. It had such a dramatic effect within 48 hours that I thought, man, I've been missing the boat on this stuff. Um, Part of it is just any barrier will work. So I don't want to say that diatomaceous earth is necessarily the most important way to go. But I like most of my tools to be multifunction. And it just so happens that if you're going to make a barrier, diatomaceous earth is a very good way to do that. Um, and so what we did to get around the problems were this. We top dressed with about a half pound of diatomaceous earth, food grade, per 15-gallon plant. It created like a half-inch layer all the way across the entire top dressed surface area. And it immediately suffocated any attempt at fungus gnats to live in there. The larvae that would have hatched come through and die. The flyers can't lay eggs in it because it's so thick and dry and powdery. And they just die when they land in it and they can't fly away. And it causes problems. It just interrupts everything. And then we also did it because we had thrips, and they have part of the life cycle in the soil. And so within 48 hours, same effect. There was nothing moving in that tent as far as flying around flies, gnats. And so I'm hoping it had the same effect on the thrip larva. And then uh, instead of trying to water through it because we did a half-inch thick layer, um, just decided, hey, you know what? The uh, I think two pounds that we ended up using were like a dollar worth of material maybe less than that, depending on the quantity you buy it in. So I took the shop back and just sucked it right off the top. It was so light that it came off, all the top dress stayed. And um, since the problem has been completely eliminated as far as anything flying around in there, and I think if you do that same process, we'll have the same results, and then you won't have to try and water through it. Um, that being said, it's still dusty and it's a mess. And so there are other ways to do it. But um, it's, as far as I can tell, it's, it's basically 100% effective and it's pretty affordable. Fantastic. I'll have to give that a go. So one question I get asked in regards to kind of IPM or like at the extreme end of it, and I just really don't have a good answer. I haven't been able to get one either is, uh, let's just say you're a first time grower because normally it's the first time growers who have this issue. If you're a first time grower and you're worried about getting, you know, spider mites or like, you know, one of the more nasty things in, in flower, do you have any real options to get rid of them once you're in flower so to speak you know like let's just say you're at week four so there's definitely buds there you know what are your options realistically for for mites are there any yeah i think there's a lot more options than people give credit for i think that the community of cannabis cultivators end up creating this conversation that's taboo and it's spraying anything on a flower as if it's just going to melt your buds and it's going to be in all the bud that you smoke. That's just not how it works. Um, you can foliar spray and it will not end up in the product. Uh, the very low dilution rates of things like essential oil or additives 
will volatize and off gas and be completely gone. They will be, you know, hit with the uh, light and the air and everything else. Now, here's something else to consider. If you're not going to spray your plants with something, even your buds, um, especially when growing outdoors or in a greenhouse or even in your grow tent, um, nature's going to be spraying them anyways. There's going to be bacteria indigenous floating in the air that's going to land on there. And there's going to be dirt and debris and other stuff floating around. Um, unless you have like a complete sterile HEPA filtered everything room, there's still some chance of that. And so a lot of people will wash their buds. Some people aren't terribly concerned with it. Some people make concentrates. Um, at the end of the day, I think that foliar spring um, really doesn't have a huge negative effect on the end result, especially in those first four weeks. Now, as you get closer to harvest, it definitely can cause a huge issue, especially when products are abused. We've seen really safe results using EM1 mixed with Tweetment, which is an enzyme uh, cleaner, uh, or just using the Tweetment. Other products on the market like it would be like Dr. Zymes and Big Time Exterminator and some of the other enzyme-based sprays. I always recommend following like a quarter dose or a half dose for any recommended anything that the manufacturer says, and that way you're going to be safe, especially in flour. Um, and then also make sure that you have airflow. Make sure that you're not going to harvest, you know, the next week. Certainly, if you're at week four and you've got spider mites, or if you notice a little bit, I would much rather see you spray something um, very natural, like maybe a homemade EM5. You can go to terraorganics.com and look up that. Uh, you can use essential oil. You can use enzyme sprays. Heck, I th I think people even using s low dilutions of neem oils and stuff um, would probably be even s safe on certain genetics at that point. Now. I don't do that. Some people say they do. I'm not sure if it affects their concentrates, but certainly the enzyme products don't, and some of the homemade products and the essential oils don't. And so I'd be comfortable recommending that as long as they used an emulsifier and you know it was no later than, say, week six at, at, at the latest. So have you heard the idea being thrown around at all? And I'll just preface this by saying you certainly didn't advocate this, but... Some people have thrown around the idea that cannabis hyperonemus is possibly just actually a code name for azadactrin poisoning, aka neem poisoning. So if that were true, it could, you know, give credence to the idea that people who do experience this have maybe just actually ingested some weed that was sprayed with neem laid in flour. Have you heard anything along those lines? I have, and I think it's grasping for straws. Um I don't see any correlation. I think that it makes a lot of sense when you start thinking about it and you're like, yeah, people spray stuff. That's got to be what it is, not our beloved plant. But, you know, there's people out there that react differently to everything, good and bad. And these are natural products that are quite potent. And, you know, I've certainly used quite a bit of it. And so I wouldn't be surprised if there are different times in my life where the plant treats me differently based on what my needs are. And I've had some people close to me in my life that went through a potential cannabis hypermesis or whatever they doctor wanted to call it and what's really frustrating for most people to go through this is they feel they're being written off with some random word that's bullshit and they're just being told that they smoke too much to go back home and i think there's a really underlying medical cause for concern there and it's something that may not be caused by cannabis but maybe during that time accentuated by it or highlighted and um it's real it certainly is and i've seen that it's not directly correlated to the azadiractrin and if that's the case, I would say that the only way it's possible is from azadiractrin extracts, which are, in my opinion, abused because of the you know high amounts of parts per million of percentage of this one singular plant constituent, which to me is doesn't have that synergistic effect, that natural safe effect like a like a plant 
based neem oil would have that you can use topically internally and has been used for thousands of years without any sort of hypermesis syndrome. Something I've noticed is really trending at the moment, you know, lactobacillus. It's the shit at the moment, you know, everyone's talking about it. What do you think about it? You know, it's one of those ones where it's super easy to make. So, I think that probably adds to why it's gaining so much momentum. But the thing I've heard from some friends who I trust their opinions greatly is they reckon that using it to flush your plants is amazing. Have you heard anything along those lines? I've heard things like that, kind of like a bacterial flush where you put it through and a lactobacillus, which is really good at breaking down organic material, goes through and supposedly flushes your plants or eats the salts out or whatever. I don't really mess around with that too much um, in the sense that um, I don't have a reason to flush. I'm not growing in that style where I'd use it for that purpose. Um, the other reason I think is a lot of people mix it with molasses to stabilize. And so the idea that molasses is uses the end of the flush kind of goes along with that thought methodology and, and lends itself to it. Um, so the molasses thing that I just mentioned, um, oftentimes if you look in the past, people would use molasses at the end of their growth cycle to kind of flush and flush with sugars or whatever that meant to kind of sweeten the buds up. Um, and so I don't, I don't really follow any of those practices, but I see lactobacillus becoming a trend because of a couple of reasons. One, it really does work. It provides some nitrogen, some amino acids. It is a soluble organic nutrient. It's got some probiotic advantages to it. And so it makes a lot of sense to me. I get it. Um, challenges that I have, you know, I don't buy a lot of milk. And so now all of a sudden I'm going to buy a jug of milk just for this. And it's coming from a cow that was fed GMO corn or, you know, fattened up or maybe it's at a dairy and it's eating good grass. I don't know. But a lot of times the whole process isn't a huge industry I want to support and start making tons of fertilizer off of purchased milk. And so if I happen to have milk on the farm or it's a waste or the milk goes bad and I can make it, I think it's great. I like to have lacto around. Um, but I've got other products like this amino acid product that I think works a lot better. Um, and that's just me. Um, but lacto is cheap to make. It's one of those products that works. It has a cool factor. So I think it's going to be here to stay and people will be using it for a long time. Um, you know, beyond that, I just, I think that people, most people that I know, when they make it for a long time, they get to the point where it's just kind of like, okay, am I going to make a routine where I make this every so often, make a ton of it? Do I activate it? Do I do it once a year? Do I do it all often? It just becomes kind of a, an unnecessary process, at least in a no-till environment, especially when I've got like this powdered amino that I think just is so much more effective and easier for me to use. Um, but if I didn't have that and I didn't want to buy a product, I think that this would be the go-to first thing that people would want to make as far as a, 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 a do-it-yourself plant fertilizer. So we haven't really seen any major, major breakthroughs in terms of extremely effective organic methods of killing pests and bugs. We, you know, I mean, there's been developments in, you know, the use of the essential oils with the neems and with the silicas, you know, so the combination of all those is certainly effective. But I'm talking about things on the level of, like, chemicals where, you know, like, you're using the product and it's, it's really wiping everything out pretty much 
quickly or instantly almost. And I thought about it and it's seems like using biological agents like predators or, you know, maybe like enzymes that are just so powerful and specific that like, you know, they literally just rip things apart similar to the way like a really chemically based one would. Do you think that's possibly like a future we could come to or do you think like it, it's not really technically viable or do you think the demand would need to be right to develop such products? seems like the Californian market is big enough that the demand would be there for like, you know, like really good organic pest killers that are really effective consistently. Yeah, I think you're right. I think the market's there. I think the demand's there. I think we're going to see products like that and they will work. And if you've read um, Paul Stamets Mycelium Running and looked down the rabbit hole of fungus, you'll see that he's worked on a number of different effective ways to utilize fungus to kill pests. And so one of the things he talks about in the book is, I believe, termites and using, creating like, for instance, I think it was ants or termites. I can't remember which one this one is relative to, but they were smart. They would sense the material that was poison to them in the fungus, and it was an odor or something like that. They wouldn't bring it, they wouldn't bring it back uh, to the nest. And even if they did, they had guards that would then dispose of the product before it got back to the queen, which is really what you want to infect to kill the colony, I guess, in this case. And so they were able to produce mushrooms that didn't either spore or created a different result in how they were grown so that it lacked the property that tipped the ants off. And so all of a sudden, they would just go harvest this stuff as if it was the best food they could find and bring it back to the queen. And everybody would give it to her and everybody would share it. And then they would all die very quickly because the fungus would completely take them over from the inside out. So I feel like there's going to be opportunity where it's very specific. The problem is is that most of the time when you think of a overall blanket targeting effect where it just eradicates pests, it doesn't necessarily fit nature's profile because they'll kill good and bad. And neem oil is fantastic because it typically only kills the herbivores that are eating the plant, not the pest-eating beneficials that we want to stay alive. And we will look at um, you know other products like the Spinosad and other things like that. It doesn't just blanket target everything and eradicate every stage from uh, adult to larva to nymph. I mean, it affects them all differently. And I think that in nature, at least, it makes sense that you don't want to have such a clear-cut killer because it breaks some of the rules of making it possible for something dramatically bad to happen out there where everything just gets wiped out. And so one of the stories that I remember reading about in, I think it was like 40,000, you know, some agricultural book about the um, Asian um, horticultural practices and farming practices. And one of the stories was about, um, you know, a long, long time ago, a king that wanted to be great told um, his people that there was a few different things that were causing major problems for them. And if they got rid of them, they would be, you know, just if they got rid of all of them, 100 percent, they would be. Uh, rich and it was a bird that was eating their grain and it was like a bug that was causing problems and you know whatever uh, the, the pests were and so they went and they killed all of the mice or they killed all the birds and they killed all of those bugs and it was basically like called upon by the nation to do so and everyone had to work endlessly to do it and they had the worst season ever because unbeknownst to them the bird ate a bug that actually ate the crop and kept it in balance even though they did take some grain and unbeknownst to them, the mice or whatever it was caused some other function that was integral to the ecosystem and its function. And so I don't pretend to know why all these bugs are there, but I know that Masanobu Fukuoka mentioned that every year the bug life 
from an entomology perspective was different and the predators were different and the bugs that flourished were different. And so if you just wiped one of them out, it may cause something else to come in and wipe you out. And, and so it's interesting that I feel like we're going to have tools like the fungus stuff. We'll have stuff that kills it, but it should be more selective in organics. And I feel like we're always going to have to use multiple tools to avoid that problem of eradicating everything and causing our own problem. Does that make sense? I kind of beat around the bush a lot, but it's just... I think that's a good response. Okay. So something I wanted to delve more into was the SAR response. That's another kind of little hot topic at the moment. Something I'm not sure if it's been specifically said, and I think people are kind of interested, is do you think by activating the SAR response in a plant you do increase terpene and resin or like there's a chance it would? Because that's what I'm interested in knowing. Is it is it like a direct response or like there's a chance it'll increase terpenes as a result of that? I think that there is going to at some point be for sure a direct response. And I think we're already there where we can say that when we look at the salicylic acid, jasminic acid pathway, which a lot of times what we're keying into when we talk about the systemic required resistance it plugs into this network the plant uses to communicate to other plants and to more accurately prepare for adverse conditions. So a plant, a plant can't just get up and run away from a storm, and so it has to weather through it. It can't just get up and run away from pests. It has to defend itself and stay right there. So this SAR response, the idea is, is that in nature we can witness where one plant is infested – and it sends out a hormone that activates the other plant's SAR response, and now they start preparing their defenses. And what's interesting is typically those defenses are medicinal. The alkaloids, the properties that they create are the secondary metabolites that are not primary to normal growth function like a leaf um, or a stem. And so these secondary properties are then increased to be a pesticide or whatever that SAR response triggered. So in our plant, we're thinking that triggering the SAR defense response without actually hurting the plant will give us a benefit of turning on more THC, increasing terpene and terpenoid that might be the actual plant defense system. And there's evidence that leads directly to that. It makes a lot of sense then from a, um, a plant constituent standpoint. That's what the plant's going to do. And so then there's correlating studies, which you can Google after this and find that there's been studies on tobacco and I think on tomato, both that have um, trichomes. And if you were to scope it, they look you know like trichomes on a cannabis plant. Um, they were dramatically increased when the um, big, like the wild sage plant that's all across the United States, um, when that plant was attacked by pests near the growing tobacco or tomato. And so they then did tests where they would release release the methyl jasminate from the sage plant and it would activate the SAR and activate the actual jasminic response system in the plants. And it seems like the jasminic side of it is towards finishing or senescence. And so that's where you'll see products like Terpinator and other ones. A lot of people think that they're playing with jasminic acid to induce these responses above and beyond just the sulfur that may lend itself to the process. And so if you start looking at jasminic acid, I think you'll be excited about it. Uh, we've been wanting to just top dress with some sage. I actually bought some jasmine oil as a way to maybe spray on the top dress, but I haven't had time to do a real side-by-side and haven't found a way to maybe send it to a lab and differentiate accurately um, what the results are. But I do want to do that, and we'll see if it works. Um, and so I guess that's, that's my thoughts on some of these products that might 
stimulate the SAR. I think it's for sure going to get us more terpenes, more THC, but it's just a matter of how much, which product, how does it actually work? I don't think we're really there yet, at least on a scalable um, level. An interesting point you brought up was the terpenator. I've heard a lot of people talk about this one, and the most common thing I hear is it increases terpene productions, but it causes everything to kind of smell a bit the same. And I'm thinking, yes, yeah, if that is jasminic acid, do you think like that's like oversaturation of the receptor and then that's what causes everything to be a bit the same? Or do you think like, I don't know, I almost tend to think that maybe it's not because if, it, if everything comes out the same, maybe there's just something in there which is then being uptaken and you know what I mean? I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I don't know. This is so confusing to me. And I'm, this is, these are the type of conversations that I like to have as far as the unknown territory. When you really get into it and being in the industry and talking about this stuff every day, a lot of it is just the same conversation over and over again. But when you start talking about this stuff, it's exciting because it, to me it's like, well, the Terpenator, across the board, we've heard people, the consensus is, like you said, that it creates this blandum. And I don't know if it's just the people that tend to use those products that are attracted to them and the genetics they're using, maybe – Maybe it's not fair. Maybe that's just a judgment that's coming across and the style of cultivation. But I feel like some of the growers I've heard that from, um, I trust and respect what they're saying. And so without having used it personally, I'm just going to say that let's say for argument's sake, it does make everything taste the same. And now we're looking at jasminic acid as potential for one of the reasons why. And so increasing that and artificially stimulating that SAR through the jasminic acid profile, potentially it only stimulates certain ones um, that the plant can maybe focus on with less energy or whatever that symptom is. But I don't know. Maybe it lends itself to the fact that that product terpenator is not necessarily just using jasminic acid. Maybe we're completely off base, totally wrong, and it's something completely different. And that's why it's leading things to stay the same. So I'd love to do a product, where we uh, a test, where we actually compare the jasminic acid, see if there's a difference. If there is a difference, then now run that against the terpenator and see if we can correlate those differences to be similar or not. Um, because... I like to think there's a way to increase production without actually taking that, uh, you know, making everything bland or making everything similar, if that makes sense. Because um, that's what we want to do in organics. We want to take the biggest yield without ever crossing the line of ruining those terpene profiles and lowering the quality of the result. And so if we can find a way to increase those expressions, that means that maybe we can follow that with yield as well as quality. And so um, it's definitely worth talking about. Um, have you played with any salicylic acid or anything like that? Or, I mean, jasminic acid? No, I haven't. I've, I've tried crazy levels of salicylic just through uh, lots of aloe, but um, have never noticed any detrimental effects through that, thankfully. Yep, me either. Um, the consensus out there based on the research is that we should avoid using the salicylic acid as we go into flower based on the fact the plant kind of sees it like a light switch. It's either on the salicylic acid side or the jasminic acid side. And using the salicylic acid may potentially delay senescence, create a longer flowering period, um, which could be beneficial in some cases, but not others. And so um, I'm intrigued by that. And I started using aloe all the way through the cycle. I started using lots of it. I didn't notice this delayed senescence or this negative effect. So that led me to the next postulation. Is it that there is not enough salicylic acid in the aloe to ever be in concern? And that using just like aspirin or maybe a salicylic acid extract would actually cause these negative effects? 
or if maybe it's just too much of a direct interpretation of the latest research on, on these components. Maybe it's more complicated than that. So um, I think in time we'll find out, but I need to do a lot more testing, and I think the community does too. So do you think maybe ultimately the only safe products to use increased terpene content is stuff with known sulfur in it? Um, sulfur certainly works. It's definitely a huge part of the process, and I think the biggest difference is going to be if you're low on sulfur. And one of the things that I noticed right away when we were making our potting soils is that um, luxury, luxury amounts of sulfur didn't cause a problem on the on the uh, plant growth. And I think one of the reasons why this happened is when I first made a coots mix in the beginning, I actually made it twice because man, I could probably find a conversation, but coot told me to just get rock dust. And because, like you said, it's it's more of a methodology than an exact list, it, it, at least over time how it's evolved. Um, I called him and said, well, I found this gypsum. Will that work? He goes, sure, that's rock dust. That'll work. And so I used four cups per cubic foot of just gypsum in this soil recipe. And I'll come to find out it's very different than rock dust. And I, I, I think that I finished that conversation with him and had a laugh about it. But I had really good results with that grow. I mean, really good results. And so whether it was the calcium or whether it was the sulfur, I knew that having luxury levels of those wasn't going to be a problem. And since then, on soil testing, I'll notice all of our potting soils that we like usually have a lot more sulfur than, for instance, Solomon or some of the others might recommend on a soil test. So I think that's important. Um, but beyond that, I feel like peak plant health, um, the lighting, the environment are very – play key roles. And then you know, obviously secondary from that – once you get that harvest where there's maximum amount of production of terpenes and flavors, it's it's that slow two-week dry. It's making sure everything's taken care of for these volatile terps to not disappear on you and for the chlorophyll to go away and all those other processes that happen during the finish. Um, but really, none of that matters if you don't have the right genetics. And I feel like we can look at every terpene enhancer you want. If you get the right cut, it'll change your life as far as terpenes and as far as odor goes. From there, um, getting a little bit more odor out of the same cut sometimes almost seems ridiculous when you find something that is that strong and in organics it just seems to be at the peak production of that unidentiqua just seems to be fully there in organics so to push it one way or another it doesn't surprise me to find that we're finding more bland taste when we push it one direction or more uniform flavors I'm just holding out hope that we can maybe squeeze more out of it and to me that circles back around to looking at wine um, they haven't been able to squeeze more out of it. In fact, to get more flavor, they actually have less yield and more drought seasons and more harsh conditions kind of activating that SAR. So um, I guess I don't know the answer, but I'm excited about the topic. So to jump to something which I think people have a bit more faith in its actual ability to increase resin and terpene content, we've seen the rise of uh, ceramic metal halides and the LEC lights which have kind of, how shall we say, overtaken just general metal halides in people's usage nowadays. Do you believe that these ones do likewise increase the resin content? It's really commonly quoted, and I think I probably believe it a little bit myself. If not, if not, it just gives a more favorable flavor profile, in my opinion. How do you feel about them? And if so, do you feel like it's kind of a game of trying to stack all these things together, which maybe do, you know, cumulatively, cumulative, cumulatively, sorry, add, uh, you know, little bits of extra production here and there to result in a better end product? Um, yeah, I feel that the ceramic metal halide, uh, you know, we carry a product called Indomax made in Colorado. 
Um, and I really like it. Um, it started off with LEDs. We noticed a difference over the typical um, high-pressure sodium or typical metal halide. And previous to that, I'd often use two 600s over a 4x4 area, one you know metal halide, one HPS, and I got really good results mixing the spectrums. I've also played with flowering with both bulbs, and I've noticed that I can get similar results under metal halide as I could high-pressure sodium, maybe just different, maybe a little more frost, maybe a little less yield, but ballpark, same numbers. And so uh, when ceramic metal halide came out, I kind of wrote it off, and I wanted to use it in veg and still playing around in flower, but I feel like the results were just staggering in veg. The health of the growth was just phenomenal, and the power behind the lower wattage was really um, intriguing to me. So we're still playing with them. We're still learning how to use them properly, I think. Um, I, I played around with using one 315 and a 4x4, and while it works, I really think that using two of them is going to be key. And a lot of people will say the same thing. Uh, but even then, efficiency-wise, they work better. And so I'll circle back around. We talked about the new, the, the uh, terpene content and the frost. I definitely notice a better outcome when using a more full-spectrum light. Whether that's LED or CMH, I don't think it matters. All that matters is that you're comparing not the technology, but you're actually comparing the spectrum of output. And there's been so much further research indicating that green light is such a powerful driver in this conversation that's been cut out of most grow lights. The way I've been heard it put is it's like the grow lights we used before worked really well, but it's almost like junk food for the plants. Where the lights we're using now is like a full-spectrum health food diet of more uh, finished more complete spectrum if the plants are able to show you their genetic potential and fully complete their process better and so it makes sense and i think we're going to continue to get better but we're still mimicking the sun i feel like the sun does the best job it's really amazing to see how powerful these plants grow out outdoors in the sun or in a greenhouse and um i think there's more behind it you know than, than just the um type of light like i mentioned it's, it's all about that spectrum but I will say for sure more terpenes, more frost and stuff out of a more quality full spectrum light, whatever the uh, type of light it is. Definitely agree with you on that one. So here's an interesting idea I've had. I've seen plants before grown with just water in a well-built soil and they look great. And then I've seen other plants looking similar and in a well-built soil just being given water only and then maybe they're given a tea. So they're given, you know, a bit more nutrients than the other one got, for example. And they weren't showing any signs of deficiency. They look very healthy, in fact. But then they have this, like, you know, this bloom of growth. And so it makes you realize, well, maybe there are times when the plants could be, so to speak, eating more than what's at the table, but it still looks reasonably happy. Do you kind of agree with that analysis? And if so, would that not lend to the idea of like even with a well-built soil, maybe giving an additional, you know, amino acid fertilizer here or there is not a bad idea? Yeah, I agree with you 100%. And I've wrestled with this as far as the romancing the idea of water only. And, you know, water only was something you heard for so long in the no-till community. And I feel like it was because... If we were really to show the hydro community how kind of crazy we were and how much stuff we wanted to do to try and do this organically, they'd just write us off as loonies like they already did. And so now, coming around full circle, if we could just build the soil and water only and actually do better than them, it would. who's laughing now? And it's proven to work. But here's the difference. I think that you have to use a larger volume of soil. You want to have a very quality soil, and not everybody can start off with that exact 
high quality, very balanced soil. So taking from that perfect effect, everybody's soil might be, you know, however many steps removed from that perfect soil. I found that even when you have the perfect soil, as you mentioned, giving the plant an easier way to go and not not necessarily bypassing the soil food web, but making the work the soil food web has to do easier and somehow more efficient seems to give the plant a faster speed of growth that suits us well for our time frame. And now one of the things that I'll consider though is that when I started no-till, I was perpetually growing. And for my own needs, I would have a tent where I had several plants in there and the plant in the left corner might be about to finish. The plant next to it might be one week behind and the plant next to that, one week behind that. And I got to tell you, in living soil, that made my life easy. I'd water them all, just water, and they all did great. And I could harvest them all at different times and keep it perpetual. But I'll tell you that the reason why it worked for me is because I was perpetual. The speed of the vegetative growth was completely irrelevant to me as long as I had healthy plants of the appropriate size on deck to go into flower when I needed them to. And then from there, I didn't necessarily need to get the biggest yield as long as the best quality. So adding extra things would only take away from my budget and not necessarily add a dramatic increase on my life for the effort. And so I think everybody needs to filter it through their process that way. You know, if you're busy and you just need some herb and you want it to be very good, fill the soil, water it, have a great time. Do not overthink this. I do not want someone to get into gardening and go, I can't do that. I I can't tease. My wife is going to smell. I don't want to have any of these amendments. Stop it. At Build a Soil, we have a basic amendment chart. You can use purchase products and go through a kind of a no-till grow with some additives that'll make it easier for you, especially in a smaller container. But from there, um, instead of just doing the water only like we talked about, uh, there are so many things you can do to speed up the process so it can fit your time frame a little bit. I think you can increase the yield. I think you can play around with the phenotypic expressions based on the inputs we're, we're, we're playing with. And so, I mean, what enthusiast wouldn't want to have a little bit of say in what's going on? And so I found that overwhelmingly, most of us no-till growers were wanting to do more than just water. Whether it's a sprouted CT, an amino acid here, the consensus across the board is, well, you may not need to, Depending on what you do, there's a definite increased return on investment from doing a little bit of extra effort. Um, and I think you probably found the same thing. You alluded to it. Um, has that been your experience? Yeah, def. Yeah. So what what I've found is I've got this awesome um, liquid aloe ferment from my homie, and basically, it's amazing. But the, the overall thing I wanted to quickly mention is what I've found through my own experience is that the the quality is always superior the less you give it. So I've consistently had like the highest quality in my opinion when it's just water only. And and in my opinion I've almost found the more you add a tea, the more you add these other things, it's almost it almost changes it a little bit. And it's you know, the terroir has always been like the best when it was just pure water only and so it was interesting to me to see that and i think i'm going to give that a go in the future yes if you can resist the temptation to add other stuff which let's face it the nature of build a soil working with a lot of people that if they're contacting me and asking me questions sometimes it's to have conversations like this but more often than not it's because they're trying to learn the basics and a lot of times they're in a five-gallon container. They haven't followed the rules right. They don't have a mulch layer. And so using a lot of these secondary products will produce really good results for them. 
But like you, I've noticed that when the plant is maybe forced to work as hard as possible to get all of its nutrients, um, you may not get that biggest yield, but the quality is absolutely undeniable. And one of the things that I will add to that is that when I notice dispensaries that come online, get a whole bunch of like a truckload of our soil, they fill up the room, they got a grower that knows how to do the no-till, they usually just crush their first round. They love it. They do a great job. It's after that that it becomes interesting when they're in containers to see if they keep the habits that will keep yield up or whether they're going to have to grab some of these products like aminos and all the other stuff or whether you continue to just do water only. And so the home grower, I think you've got kind of a luxury of having a small garden and you can do just water only and the results really are pretty astounding. In fact, um, I'd like to do a side-by-side as far as like back-to-back rounds once we start running the same cut over and over again and we'll do the full system against water only and we'll compare terpene profile, yield and all that stuff. That'll be very interesting to see the results. So with that same kind of topic in mind, do you think it's possible to overdo it with teas or are you just wasting tea at a certain point? Like, do you get negative effects from tea at some point or is it just wasting it? Um, I think that depends on your definition of tea. I feel like for the most part, if you're doing something very diluted or just microbial in, in nature, um, pretty much just waste an effort at a certain point. There's just going to be a diminishing point of return where you don't see really increased plant growth. And for the most part, um, you could have probably just used water. I mean, plants like water, you know, you don't always have to give them something. Um, and then the other consideration is if you're making a nutrient tea and you're doing it all the time, you can certainly overdo it. There's a point where you're putting just so many soluble nutrients in there of one, of one type or another that it's starting to skew the balance that we worked so hard to get in a living soil. And what's great about living soil is it can exchange nutrients positive or negatively. It can change the pH around the rhizosphere. And I think a lot of that is predicated upon the fact that there's not some consistent outside source constantly changing what that soil actually is to the plant. And so you can overdo it when you do a lot of nutrients. Um, conversely, if you do top dressing, though it's a little harder to overdo it. I mean, you're going to be limited by the space you have on top, and it's not necessarily directly interacting with the rhizosphere so directly. And um, a lot of times it's not so micronized where it's carried right into that root zone. So top dressing a little more forgiving, and I feel like that's why a lot of no-till people that are doing water only will still do some top dressing because we're removing biomass each cycle. And unless we're adding something back to the soil, we're eventually going to have deficiencies. Exactly. So one idea I wanted to run by you, though, is a few people had expressed this idea to me, and I wanted to see if you think there's any major flaw in it. I kind of was asking people, like, what they thought a tea was actually doing for the microlife and the nutrients in their pot. And the general answer I got was, it's kind of a way of, like, artificially injecting nutrients and microbes into the pot, and over a few days, it's going to kind of decline, reestablish the new levels... And then maybe that's when you'd apply another tea. Do you think that's kind of the way it works or it's that's like too simplistic of a view? No, I think that's the way it works. I mean, we're all creating this picture in our mind of what happens when we pour a tea on there. We can look at a microscope and see all the biology that's in the tea. Um, we can take a bit of our soil and do a paste, like do a liquid extract of that, throw that under the scope and see the biology that's in there. As close as we can tell, a lot of it looks pretty similar, but, you know, Coot, he doesn't do any compost teas. When he teaches me, he goes, how the hell am I supposed to know if all that bacteria were growing in a 
bucket of water anything like the bacteria that should be growing in your soil in totally different conditions. And so I think that's where we get the people saying there has to be a certain dissolved oxygen level, and that's how you know it's going to be anaerobic and more like the soil conditions. And coot goes great, but why don't I just throw a handful of castings on there, and I'm, I know it's just like the soil. Or put worms in there, and we know it's exactly how it's supposed to be. So I feel like you can kind of overthink any of these things. And as far as I understand it, just like everybody else, you brew up a tea, and let's say it's a bacterial tea or fungal whatever. It's not a nutrient tea. And it's either completely eat your molasses or fish, and it's basically just biology at this point. You pour it in your soil. The idea is is that they will go in there, and the bacteria is going to need food. And they're going to start to eat some of the organic material and start to release some of the inorganic nutrients that our plants can absorb until they're released through the cation exchange and they have to be done through biology. So you dump all this biology on, it just goes through and releases nutrients. The plant can then get a release and they get to grow. And I feel like it's this cycle where they get to work on their own, almost like a, a, an athlete, and then they get a protein shake or they don't have to work so hard. And what I mean by that is normally we have to like digest our food. We have to chew it first. We have to break it down in our stomach. But when you have a protein shake, it's just a quick boost of energy. Uh, while you can live off protein shakes, I don't think that it's going to be a good idea to do it for every single meal all the time. Maybe a couple of them a day, maybe one a day. Um, and so much like that, I feel like if you were trying to grow hydroponically with no soil medium and just use compost teas, you would quickly see its limitation. But if you have a good foundation, I think that just biology is going to be hard to overdo. And um, when it goes in there and creates these booms, one of the one of the thought processes is if we're not adding more nutrients at some point, are we just speeding up the release of our nutrients in our soil only to cause problems in the future where we now are dependent on adding all these teas all the time? And so which came first, right? Did we create our own problem? I think the answer to that is just having a good mulch layer and using a lot of the above. And then when you, like you mentioned, use a tea, tea here or there, you notice a dramatic effect. When you use them every time, it, it 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 just seems to lose its its dramatic effect. And so, just to jump back to Coot for one moment, I found a post from a while ago saying that he doesn't use any liming sauce anymore. How do you feel about that? And do you still recommend a liming sauce? Um, I, you know, when you talk to him, he does, and part of that is because he uses worm castings, where he works that into his castings, and the castings are then having a lot of calcium carbonate in them, which does affect the pH. Um, and his castings are probably fairly neutral. Um, the other thing is when we talked to him about our official coop mix, um, he very much said that keeping the oyster shell flour in there was acceptable. And part of that is we don't use a hundred, you know, as much castings in there. Um, in our new recipe, we're adding some. And then the other thing is he does use the calcium carbonate in the form of the crustacean meal. And so that's another form where you'd get the calcium carbonate. And then the gypsum that we use is the calcium sulfate. And so I think most people consider the liming agent to be the calcium carbonate because that's what lime is considered to be. Um, so he still does. I think that uh, it, can, it can be interpreted many ways. Coot has a thousand conversations about this stuff. I'm sure he said many times, sure, you don't need it. Use the crustacean meal. Sure, you don't need it. Use this. He's very much not the type of person that would say you have to have anything. And so Mountain Organics, I think, would probably be the one that laid out the actual recipe through the like alternating water, tea, water, top dress kind of basic methodology in the no-till thread revisited form that he uh, talked about. That recipe just included some basalt and no oyster. 
And that would be the line that people were talking about. But when I talk to Cute, still recommends using oyster shell. Um, I just think that uh, depending on your situation, it may not be needed. I feel there's so much power in calcium. Regardless of what Coot says, I really like to have a lot of calcium. Um, and then the conversation now is getting a little more advanced when we're working with agro- uh, agronomists that are actually looking at our soils for our hemp farms. We're starting to get more insight and in working with real professionals with degrees and finding out that the water testing and the carbonate level there can actually affect the desired input that we might use in our soil. And so I, I just think that consistently when we get back to it, depending on potting soil or agronomy, there's no one-size-fits-all answer. The Coots Mix is a great one-size-fits-all recipe, but it's predicated on quality compost. And at the end of the day, there's no one-size-fits-all for any of this stuff, depending on where you live. You mentioned Mountain Organics, and he's someone who's, in my eyes, very much popularized the use of uh, these tinctures, especially the ones he makes. Not, not you know, that there's anything disingenuous about that. Um, do you, have you used them? Do you think that they're going to increase in popularity, the use of tinctures in general, or what do you reckon on the issue? Um, it's kind of a tough situation in the sense that um, Kuda since told me he thinks they're complete bullshit and a waste of time. And I take what he says with a grain of salt because he has human relationships just like all of them that might play into that a little bit. And he did speak highly of them for a short period of time, like a couple of other products that he no longer does. And so I know that he goes through these learning curves, too, where he gets excited about something. We talk about it, and it turns out it's just not what we thought it was. And he's come since and said that these glycerin and tinctures are just a total waste of time and that there's better ways to do it. And so I'm trying to stay out of the middle of that. I really... Um, have not really had a relationship with these people for a long time, but knowing them through the internet for a long time, and we've made some connections there. And Mountain Organics has done so much for the community as far as helping them keep this really simple process to no-till gardening. I mean, he basically invented no-till. I don't, I wouldn't say he invented it, but it's like we were all in the forums talking about recycling soil and, and working towards no-till, but it was like, man, he's the guy on the 15th cycle who's just doing it. And he was sticking to that basic philosophy and all of a sudden there's a million different tinctures that you got to use now at all these different levels and we're not seeing any dramatic results out there the one that i feel like people are really using right now is the retha nut tincture but retha nut is by far way more affordable to get and use on your own emulsifies oil and is so easy to use we're going to release a couple different products uh one of them is just the powder we're going to get it from usha neem resource i really like working with her heck you can go buy it from her right now when i get back in the office next week we'll have it and we have the whole seed, and it's really quality. You can grind it up. You just mix it in a little bit of water. We'll have the exact ratios. Instead of like going crazy with it and screening it out, you just let the dust settle. Take about 15 milliliters of this of this saponin water uh, and put it in your neem oil, and it'll emulsify it per gallon of water. And so there's some really easy processes that when I'm looking at recommending a product to you know a, a a facility that has a thousand plants in a greenhouse, I want to make sure that not only is it effective, but it's cost effective. And so that's the reason why I haven't necessarily started recommending his products across the board. That and, you know, he was the original get off the bottle guy. And so we were always talking about this and getting out of the bottle. And I feel like I'm, I'm backpedaling a little bit by doing amino acids and these microbial products. I've since come to learn that there's a place for all of these tools. And so I will not write off the glycerin tinctures, but, um, you know, I, I can use aloe, I can use barley, I, I can use soap nut without putting it through glycerin, and I don't see any real benefit to doing that. And and I have used his products, I've ordered them from him, 
I've also ordered the book on no-till that he offers at his website. And I think that I've had a good experience as far as customer service. I got the products. Um, I just, I haven't used them and, and, um, you know, behind the scenes, I've had this conversation a couple times, but politically I try not to just, you know, go out there and talk about other products just because I don't, don't use them. And so, um, when someone asked me point blank though, I just don't think that's the future of cannabis gardening, uh, at, at all. I don't think it's going to last. Okay. And so just to hit on saponins a bit harder, they definitely seem to be a bit of a trending topic and, you know, just the general use of emulsifying properties. Do you think it's really something that'll stick around or it's maybe, you know, I think last time we called it, what is it the, the trending non-purple sulfur bacteria. What do you think on it? You think good enough to hang around? Uh, yeah, because it's hung around forever. It's nothing new and it's just people get excited about learning about these things as if it's new. Um, and, you know, there's an IPM report that I would really encourage vi- um, listeners to go download. Um, you can, the quickest way I can tell you to do it is through a Build-A-Soil link, but you don't have to get it through us. You can get it through the Tweetment people. Um, the guy that made the product like 40 years ago, he owns the patent on enzyme action on pests, and he's an um, entomologist or an integrated pest management specialist. I mean, he has some background in this. And he wrote an IPM report through Build-A-Soil. If you go to the product Tweetment, there's a link in there for like useful info. And if you download it, it's a organic IPM um routine and it goes through so many different processes talking about all this stuff and it's all free and one of the things you'll find in there is the saponins and mixing in cuhila extract i can't say that word um soap nut and yucca and we're just talking about yucca and soap nut now and this was you know an old report and there's all the books you'll find we'll talk about the benefits of this. Now, his story with the treatment is that he knew a lot of people that were farmers and they were all dying from cancer. And he found out they were all applying a lot of pesticides as the family way. They all had to support the business. And he noticed that he could just take the pesticide out and just alternate different surfactants and different levels of saponin and get really good results, similarly to using these expensive pesticides. So it was almost as if they were being sold bullshit. And he could just use these saponins and use these surfactants and use you know different modes of action like that. And so full circle, we come around and we're talking about saponin as if it's magic, but it really is. We look into it and there are so many different types of saponin. They have different effects. You can even Google uh, this string of words, saponin as a plant growth stimulant, and see that there are results indicating that saponin actually helps. And we're thinking that it almost like creates a goop, like a like as a surfactant, like a modality of travel for the microbes in the soil by creating this level of viscosity in there. And the fact that it has these fungal properties and these, I mean, it's not going to be like a neem gate, you know, putting soap in your soil is not going to kill all the fungus, but it could have some effects related to the biology. And we're seeing positive effects watering soap nut and saponins in the soil, let alone using it as part of foliar sprays. So now I think that's why we're going to see it being talked about more is I think the benefits are um, undervalued at this point. And so we're going to start talking about using yucca and soap nut and stuff a lot more because we see tremendous benefit, especially in peat-based soils, to keeping everything sponge-like, keeping the moisture um, even. And then on top of that, the saponin itself, when you look into its structure, there are some indications that it has some plant growth benefits, which is really interesting. If we jump over to aloe vera, which is, you know, kind of like the step back from saponins in some regards, 
how do you think um, the difference in quality affects the difference in, you know, like what you're going to get from the plant? Because I've noticed at the lower end of the spectrum, you can get like aloe vera powder, which is just doesn't have any label of the concentration. And then you've got the 100X, the 200X. Is it the case that, you know, like the, the higher the number in concentration, the better? And what does that number even refer to? Is it like content of saponins or salicylic acid and is, is it worth the money because they definitely get more expensive as you move up the line yeah so i'll tell you exactly what that uh, x's mean that's the concentration so 200x is the most affordable because it takes the smallest amount of that powder to create the most amount of actual aloe vera liquid and so 200x what that means specifically is that 199 grams of water and one gram of this powder would create 200 grams of actual concentrate just like you get from the aloe vera plant and so that one gram to 199 or that 200x concentrate is half as strong if you get the 100x it's going to take two grams or it's going to only take one gram against 99 grams of water instead of one gram against 199 and so that's a big difference that's twice as effective when you get 200x and i guarantee you it's not twice as much money and then you get to the non-measured levels and you start to get all sorts of adulterants and we we really care about the aloe and it's, it's a pain in the butt because sometimes we run into supply issues based on weather or seasonal or the um, demand. We spend twenty, thirty thousand dollars at a time on aloe, and it's scary. But it's it's a popular product for us because of how effective it is. Um, you can grow your own aloe. I think it's the best way. It just becomes a problem on scale, so we sell a lot of it. But in this shopping period where we had supply issues, one of the things we love about our suppliers they actually were willing to test the products we were going to get when they couldn't provide for us. And in testing, we found that these other companies were guaranteeing inner aloe filet, but they were hitting markers for non-inner aloe filet. And that means that there's a lot of lying in the industry and they were just squeezing it instead of cutting it or whatever their shortcut was. And it created a very adulterated product, especially on the chemical constituent level. And so much like everything else, there's a lot of bullshit out there. And when you go to a company that's providing all of the data behind it and can back it up, it means a lot. And so it's worth paying for a product that's that's actually what it is, especially when you're having to go around growing yourself, which would obviously be the best way and most cost effective. Um, but then from there, if you're going to ship it in, an ounce of 200X will go significantly further than an ounce of unlabeled or 100X concentrate. So a lot of people are talking about the use of plant ferments to increase terpene production. The one I see getting flung around the most is like banana and mango ferments. And there seems to be like a growing group of people who really do think it, you know, increases the plant's terpenes. If that's true, you know, does it not imply that there's some kind of hormone or chemical specifically in mangoes or bananas that are you know, key in triggering increase in terpenes? Or do you think it's all just too anecdotal to give any credence to? I don't know. Um, it seems like stuff with sugars in it has always come back to people thinking it increases flavor. And I'm sure there's carbohydrate. There's some sort of correlative data there. But um, I think from a ferment level, you're also you're getting that organic addition. And so if somebody's using ferments and they weren't before – I think that at some level, these ferments do increase the terpene level there. There's something about it that, that does help. Maybe it's just adding organics to maybe a system that otherwise wouldn't have that. Um, 
But the mango specifically and the fruit ones, we've always talked about the benefits. So if you were to go buy enzymes for digestion, a lot of times they're based on these tropical fruits because they have extract like enzymes like papayan and from papaya and other ones that are very, very strong enzymes. So I feel like maybe that's what's going on is we're getting some of the, these beneficial enzymes that are really increasing the ability and that is being by secondary nature increase, increasing the terpenes. Maybe not the fact that it's just a mango. Then you complicate it by the fact that mangoes have already been told to increase the, um, you know, there's murkine or something or mercine. Sorry, I always say all these words wrong when you, when you read them and, and say them to yourself. Um, but, but eventually – you get these stories a lot, a lot of times they're relative like mangoes are going to increase your high mango fermented is going to increase the THC and you can't help but to think maybe there's a little bit of folklore there um, but it seems like I, just like you people that I respect and people that I know are saying these fruit ferments these are, are increasing their quality somehow and so um, I'll probably do some playing around with that I have in the past and it didn't really make a noticeable enough difference, but I'll, I'd be willing to admit that maybe I was doing it wrong. You know? So second last question, how do you feel social media affects the landscapes of kind of growers and their view on organics? And what I mean by this is I've noticed that time and time again, people on both sides of the fence will point to very specifically maybe one or two people who uses their style of growing to give like huge credibility to their arguments. And what it's made me think is, do you think it's gotten to the point where it like muddies people's views on which grow style is maybe the best for them or just the best in general? Because it seems like, you know, you can always find someone to validate your argument on Instagram. Yeah, and it's tough too because what you see on Instagram is not always what's real. And when you start to meet a whole bunch of growers, I mean, even me, probably people probably think Build a Soil is some crazy, you know, amazing grower. And the harvest I had last time was fine, but I didn't even you know the genetics we grew weren't that great. And I wish I would have grown something else. And so um, it's not always this just like perfect grow. And and um, when you start to look at like these synthetic growers that have crazy yields and tons of photos and always the newest genetic and they have a huge social media following or you have this organic grower that's always updating and people say that they've got the best plants i think the one thing is the same across the board you have good dedicated gardeners regardless of what their methodology is and at the end of the day that's what it takes is it's going to take a lot of work and it's going to take dedication and discipline and gardening has forever been the teacher of man to get a lot of these things um put together in their life from having patience and plan and organization that's constantly teaching me i'm trying to get better in so many different areas of my life it can feel like um you know there's so much to work on in the garden and, and in other places but um when you go on social media and you start seeing everybody and all they show you is just like their facebook them on vacation the biggest buds they've ever seen it starts to become this kind of false reality and, and so i like to highlight like on instagram see the thrips that we had in our tent and us trying to get rid of them um, I like to highlight the bad stuff that happens too so that people can kind of see that reality. And I think the reality is no matter what style of grow you do, you're going to go through learning curves, problems, ups, downs. Um, for me, it, it just made no sense to grow any other way than organic. Um, especially when I wanted to eat that way. I knew how the genes and the pesticides and everything were affecting um, not just our grow, but actually the soil and the earth and, 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 and everything else. So it was, it's like a no-brainer. 
But for a lot of other people, it's not. They're on the fence. They don't care. They don't have any education, and they're just looking at what grows the best wheat. They want to grow organic. They want to grow hydro with no other consequences to the planet Earth. And so then they start pointing at all these different arguments on social media about what's going to yield the best or what does this. And nine times out of ten, they're not comparing the same genetics, the same growth style, the same setup, the same lights. And so, so much is missed that it's so important that you have somebody trusted that you can maybe level with and tell you the truth or maybe a resource like the podcast that can interview people that have more experience, breeders, growers. And for the most part, there's no product that's going to double double your yield and there's no system that's going to guarantee you any sort of result. It's all going to come down to your ethics and your work and your principles. Lucky last question for this one. If you could only pick one additive, and I use the word additive because, you know, it could be like a dry additive, it could be a liquid, it could be a, you know, in a bottle, it could be whatever, um, to use on top of what you would consider to be, you know, like a pretty well-balanced soil, what would it be? You know, would it be your aminos or even like a big handful of neem? <laughs> ah, that one's tough. Um, I don't know. <laughs> it really is tough. I think if you have a really well-balanced soil, right? Because I, I kind of want to say on a brand new soil with most growers that start with our products, I feel like if they have at the very minimal a microbial product and an amino acid product, they're going to make it through the grow. They're going to do really good and they'll have you know the best chance of doing that. So I feel like those two are kind of the what I would have. If I had to just pick one of those, I feel like if my soil was already really good, my biology should be awesome already. And the ability to bypass that limiting factor with the amino acids and help them build with all the other stuff that's in the soil, um, that'd probably be the one go-to additive. And if I had to switch the question a little bit and be what do-it-yourself item could you just you know be the one thing? I feel like compost tea just beats them all because it's so easy to make. It's cost effective. You don't have to do it for a couple of days like labs and all that stuff. But um, probably the amino acid powder, that thriving stuff just really works. Yeah, awesome. Did you have any comments or shout-outs you want to make? Um, no, not right now. I mean, we're, we've got so many things coming down the pipe. We've got um, – I guess I'll do a couple basic updates. We've got the uh, – complete no-till support kit that if you're considering trying this if you go to buildasoil.com and look at the no-till bundle it's every product from start to finish that you would need and it's got free shipping and there's soil there and there's the support system the mulch the cover crop i mean the entire thing is there and so instead of you having to go pick and choose and ask us you know what should i get i'm not sure go to the no-till bundle I think it's like 281 bucks to your door. It has like 13, 14 products, and you'll have an answer to everything. It's got basic IPM. It's got additives like we talked about, like the microbes and, and the amino acids. Completely covers the whole profile. Um, from there, an announcement that maybe nobody knows about, and I'd love for you to check out, is forums.buildasoil.com. We created a forum. It's going to be for us to... Um, it's going to be for us to keep a place to answer questions and actually keep it up instead of doing it where we have to answer the same question over and over. And we also want to do a lot of these side-by-side tests, document it all. And so if you check out forums.buildasoil.com, it's just getting up and running. We need your help to build the community and to get it more exciting and have better conversations. Check that out. And then I'd like to give a shout-out to all of our customers and just say thanks if you listened all the way through. That means you're a total dedicated you know, no-till grower and that this stuff interests you as much as it does us. 
And we couldn't do it without you. We really appreciate it. We love when you call in, ask us questions, when you email us or Facebook us. It makes us feel like we have a purpose. And our employees, we've got you know, sometimes up to 15 employees that all get to work just because of you guys. So um, I guess that'd be the shout out. Awesome. Well, a big thank you to Jeremy from Buildersoil for coming on the show. I guess you're now our first veteran. <laughs> um, and I'll be sure to check out the forum. All right, cool. Appreciate it. Um, we're not that active yet, but over the next couple of weeks, we're going to put a lot of effort over there. So it'd be cool to see you there. And I appreciate you taking the time to interview me. And there you have it, my friends. A big thank you again to Jeremy for taking the time to sit down and chat with us for the second time. Make sure everyone to check out the forums, check out Builder Soil, all the new products they're offering. A huge thank you to our two show sponsors, 420 Australia and OGS, who sponsor the store immensely and we're incredibly grateful for that. As well as our Patreon fans, who have been the driving force behind a lot of the extra content recently. So everyone, big thank you to them. And... We'll see you.